This is part five of Conquest of the Americas. I am your caffeinated host, Jesse Wiest, and thank you for tuning in. Now, Big Heads Media, if you don't know it, is sort of like a Netflix for podcasts. What they do is sift through the many, many thousands of podcasts on the internet, find some of the best shows out there, and collect them for people like you and me who enjoy listening to uh, podcasts. Now, needless to say, that means I'm part of a pretty awesome lineup of history shows. One of them is deep into history. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic, and here is a quick preview of that show. After my first few episodes, some of my newfound fans called me a lore master, which was an honor and so epically cool. But the thing is, I desire to be known as the lore master. So... This is the tale of the rise of an epic podcast that critics say is redefining a genre. The tale of a man who decided that his calling in life was to give a future to the past. The saga of Arjun, your lore master. Come dream with me as we go deep into our stories. If you think you've been taken to a battlefield before, I assure you, you're mistaken. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and prepare to let your mind flow to my voice as we go deep. Welcome to Deep into History, available everywhere. I'd also like to tell you about a Discord server that I uh, am kind of involved with. I started getting on checking out Discord pretty lately, uh, let me say that first. It's a pretty cool social media platform if you're not aware of it, if you're old like me and you're just like, Discord, what is this? Uh, anyway... You can join different servers or communities, and one uh, community I'm a member of is called History Required. And I want to tell you about it because basically History Required is a community of, well, obviously history nerds like myself and uh, various experts in various fields. And uh, they have really neat kind of discussion points uh, like uh, questions of the day and stuff like that. And, uh, anyway, I put a link to History Required in the show notes. So please check out the show notes of the show. And, and uh, if you go to Discord and go to History Required, hey, wow, uh, you can find me there. And that's really pretty something. Um, now, in addition, I'd also uh, put up another link uh, for a, a really cool political talk show that I also would like to promote. It's on Twitch TV. Now, similarly to Discord, I just recently learned about Twitch.tv myself. It's sort of like a, oh, a strictly live version of YouTube. It's pretty cool. Um, the show I like on Twitch TV is called A Difficult Truth. 
basically a progressive talk show hosted by a dude who does news and politics and I guess tries to bring the important issues to the front. It airs four times a week, Monday through Thursday. Uh, what more could you ask for? Uh, I put the link up for A Difficult Truth uh, in the show notes as well. And uh, yeah, thanks you guys for checking out all of the uh, uh, the people who support this show. Um, anyway, awesome. If you want to support the show directly, uh, please take a moment to share, subscribe, rate, review the podcast if possible. Um, and uh, if you really want to, head on over to patreon.com slash atlanticworld. You can become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar per month, and doing that means you'll basically be helping me buy research materials like history books faster, and that means you get quality episodes faster as well. Um, it's a dollar a month. Uh, it's a pittance in exchange for some really great history. You will also get to listen to an audio form of a new project I'm working on called The Man Who Killed George Washington, if you do that. Now, ultimately, I'm going to try and publish that as a graphic novel, and um, as I need to get an artist uh, coming up soon. But as soon as I do that, uh, I'm going to be uploading the first few scenes, I guess, of the man who killed George Washington. So you can check that out um, pretty soon if you want to hear more. Um, at any rate, you can check out the show notes, like I said again, to for links to all of this great stuff. And in addition, uh, that's where I've got kind of the work cited and the bibliography for this episode. I've decided uh, that I'm going to just put that down uh, in the show notes instead of me babbling on for a paragraph or two uh, uh, on, on stuff that really should just be written down instead. Anyway, there's some great books that I use for this show uh, if you want to learn more. Um, okay. Now, with all of that said, uh, let's get started. You could sum up the conquest of the Americas um, as basically an extension of the Crusades, and especially of the Reconquista of Spain and Portugal. Um, well, these two nations were reconquered by uh, Christian knights and warriors slowly, and after hundreds of years after all this process starts, the final Muslim kingdom of Granada capitulates to Spain. In that same year, 1492, Columbus discovers the New World in the name of Ferdinand and Isabella, the most Catholic king and queen of this most Catholic realm. Now, last episode, um, we talked about that how the conquest of the Americas wasn't completely one-sided. I mean, sure, there were no American armies that sailed to Europe to sack coastal villages and take European slaves, but American ideas, and specifically Brazilian ideas, certainly did cross the Atlantic, and you could say infected Europe with ideas about freedom that a lot of the continent hadn't really experienced, uh, I mean, at least since the days before Rome. Um, now, in the fifth, this installment of the Conquest of the Americas, we are similarly discussing movements across the Atlantic, which aren't quite so easy to detect. So, it might seem odd that the focus of this episode is going to be the Spanish Inquisition, by the time we're through, I can promise you that you'll have a great understanding of exactly why it is that the Spanish Inquisition is 
so important to the history of the Atlantic world. Even if you're a Monty Python fan, I think you'll find this episode is going to be full of surprises. Now, if you're jonesing for a return to a more, shall we say, traditional episode about the conquest of the Americas, you're not actually going to be waiting too much longer because our next episode is all going to be all about Cortez and Montezuma. So if you are jonesing for that sort of thing, uh, and let me tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to do that episode too, but we have come to the point in our story where I just cannot hold off on this topic any longer. So before we get into any further conquests in the Americas, first things first. I have a confession to make. Now, in Roman law, there were three forms of legal action in criminal cases. Accusatio, denunciatio, and inquisitio. Now, I have no idea how to pronounce Latin words, so I hope that's right. Now, in accusatio, an accuser accuses someone of something, as you might imagine. Denunciatio involves a public official asking a court to take action. And inquisitio, or investigation, involved the imprisonment of someone for interrogation in an attempt to secure a confession. Now, by the third century, inquisitio was used in Rome as a trial for a public crime where a magistrate who would send out agents to search for evidence, the magistrate would search to find a complete proof, and that could come via a confession or from two eyewitnesses who, if they agreed on the details of the same event, that could uh, justify a proof. Now, inquisitio was used to root out the truth of all manner of crimes in ancient Rome. I mean, mind you, of course, they don't have DNA evidence back then. But now, what concerns our story is one crime in particular. The crime of heresy. Now, some of the earliest heretics punished under Roman law were early Christians. They were punished as heretics by pagan Roman officials. Septimius Severus made the Inquisitio of Christians a prominent feature of his public policy as emperor in 202 AD. As time passed, the Roman magistrates who practiced Inquisitio gradually obtained more control over Rome's legal system. Rome's emperors, meanwhile, were simultaneously expanding the list of public crimes. Their favorite crime to charge pe Roman people with, mind you, the Roman emperors, was treason. But the Romans also started doing something else. They realized it was hard to get confessions sometimes, so they also started torturing people. Now, at first, only slaves were tortured to get confessions. But by the time Rome converted to Christianity, the use of torture had become widespread enough that both free citizens and slaves could be tortured in case of treason. Additionally, when Rome converted to Christianity, Inquisitio was expanded so that 
the crime of heresy was applied to the opponents of Orthodox Christian beliefs and pagans. Heretic is a Greek word, uh, or it comes from the Greek word heresis, uh, if I am pronouncing that correct, which means choice or thing chosen. Now, in the Latin West, heresy came to be known as a theological error. The word doesn't mean doubt. It's not that. It's Legally speaking, it was the formal public denial of an aspect of Orthodox Christian theology. Now, at any rate, the Roman conversion to Christianity meant that the enemies of Christianity suddenly became enemies of the state across large swaths of Europe. Now, even as the Western Roman Empire fell apart, Roman law continued uh, in, in Europe with the help of the church. Um, for example, Charlemagne ordered his bishops to be diligent in investigating offenses in their dioceses. But until the formation of the medieval inquisition, the punishment for heretics in the early medieval period was tame. Uh, in the 10th and 11th centuries, the most severe punishment given to heretics was excommunication from the church. Now, the expert historian of this, uh, is of both the medieval and the Spanish Inquisition, is Henry Charles Leia. He was a historian of the early 20th century. He wrote what is basically the still, to this day, basically the Bible of the medieval Inquisition. Uh, frankly, though, he's kind of a boring writer, if you ask me, but his work is highly informative. Um, Leia stated by, that by the 12th century, quote, the church thus possessed an organization well adapted for the discovery and investigation of heretics, unquote. Now, at the same time uh, that the um, excuse me. At this same time that the, the church is uh, organizing itself to investigate heretics, Roman law was fi started finding a revival in Western Europe, um, in part due to the Crusades. Both church and kings sought ways to consolidate power. And as they reobtained, I guess, uh, Latin legal texts, you know, and, and Roman histories uh, written in Latin from, from the Middle East, uh, a lot of these kings and the church kind of discovered that Roman law was just what the despot ordered if you were really trying to consolidate power. The Catholic Church grew in power through the Middle Ages, and heresy grew alongside it. Now, this might seem counterintuitive because the church, uh, you know, this is, there's no Protestant Reformation yet. The church had control over souls, minds, and actions of Christians. And so the church was growing. But, well, how does this mean, how does heretical thought grow too, you might wonder? Well, if you give someone or an institution control over the souls, minds, and actions, uh, that's a lot of power. And as they say, power corrupts. Numerous high-ranking church officials, for example, were married. Many had uh, mistresses. Many had numerous mistresses. Um, 
not to mention a, a lot of the uh, Episcopal offices in the medieval church were just sold to wealthy families so that a priest in the wealthy family uh, would get a, an important position in the church rather than, say, a, the, the most pious priest who might deserve an honor, uh, like a promotion. Now, in addition, uh, the commoners... Um, paid extensive taxes to the nobility, were further burdened with a tithe to the church. Um, besides this tithe, though, the mind you, the tithe that you paid didn't might not actually get you into heaven. You could also actually buy indulgences, bribes into heaven. That's one of the things that really pissed Martin Luther off later. But anyway, to add to all of this, all these problems, if, if, you, if you're starting to get an idea of a corrupt institution, well, Whenever clerics get in legal trouble in the Middle Ages, they are able to claim clerical immunity. And this sometimes could be claimed for the same sort of things they get in trouble nowadays for the kind of churches uh, scandals there are. What Henry Charles Lea calls, quote, sexual disorders among sections of the clergy, unquote. What you and I might call child rape. He was writing a hundred years ago. Now, to, all of this adds up, and you've got what Leia calls fertile soil for the growth of heresy. Now, so the medieval Inquisition arises as a counter-reaction to the fact that more and more people were increasingly disillusioned by the church's excesses. Now, incidentally, the church began to realize that performing an inquisition, that is, uh, an, an investigation, um, didn't always just result in a confession just because you interviewed someone. Um, what if the person you were interrogating was really smart and they outsmarted you? No, seriously, that might happen. Or what if the person you were saying was in, you were you were trying to interview for a confession? Well, what if they really really knew the Bible like really well? Well, how would you ever find out if they were truly heretical and not just pretending to be faithful? Well, that certainly was a problem in the minds of the inquisitors. Leia tells us that the Inquisitor was frequently baffled by the innocence or astuteness of the accused. Well, how are we going to fix that? The Inquisition asked. Well, the first modification to the Inquisition to combat um, innocence or astuteness was that inquisitorial trials were extended. The records of the medieval Inquisition show us that trials often lasted from between three and ten years. Imagine sitting in a jail cell for five or ten years, being interrogated every few weeks. Meanwhile, your family may literally be starving without your help. Well, this lengthened time of imprisonment led to a greater rate of confessions, as you might imagine. And ten years, just so you know, is not the longest Inquisition trial we have records for. The Frenchman Guillaume Garrick is the unfortunate man to hold that record. He stood trial for heresy for nearly 30 years before confessing. But lengthening the accused's stay in prison wasn't the only way an Inquisitor might induce confession. 
the conditions of the inquisitorial jails were actually generally better than secular prisons, but to obtain a confession, an inquisitor might rob a prisoner of his or her bed, or maybe start feeding them insufficient food. And now beyond all of these tactics, the Inquisition also began to torture. In the mid-13th century, after the murder of an Inquisitor uh, who is now known to history as St. Peter Martyr, the assassins, in fact, were tried not for murder, but for heresy, which is an indication of the growth, I think, of the power of the, inst of the Inquisition as an instrument of law through parts of Europe, to be honest. Um, at any rate, the church also resorted to physical torture in order to induce confessions um, after this assassination. Now, technically, torture isn't even really part of most traditional European culture, um, legally speaking. I'm not talking about crazy people torturing someone, except for the Romans, who practiced torture on a pretty regular basis. According to Leia, at any rate, quote, the barbarians who founded the commonwealths of Europe and their systems of jurisprudence had grown up free from its contamination, unquote. In the 13th century, though, Europe was reintroduced, like I said, to a lot of ancient Roman and Greek texts um, as a result of the, uh, of, the, of the Crusades, and they began... Uh, some people began studying Roman law. And European rulers quickly learned about Roman concepts of justice and the arguments that Roman emperors used uh, to conduct torture, that it was a practical tool. Um, and in turn, European rulers began to practice torture on their own subjects in the uh, 13th century. So too did the church through the Inquisition. The Inquisition and the Catholic Church saw torture as an effective means of gathering confessions. Quote, just as thieves and robbers are forced to confess their crimes and accuse their accomplices, unquote. And of course, I'm not really here to talk about the medieval Inquisition, though. And I bring all of that as a background up for what we are talking about, the Spanish Inquisition, because while it's certainly true that, like uh, Monty Python said, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, the Inquisition didn't simply arise out of thin air. The only main difference in how the Spanish Inquisition, Inquisition functioned, as opposed to the medieval Inquisition, was then the, in the Middle, Middle Ages, the Inquisition was controlled by the papacy. In some ways, that, uh, the Spanish Inquisition wasn't really Spanish then. It, it really just differed from the medieval Inquisition in that the Spanish Inquisition was controlled by the Spanish crown instead of the papacy, which also makes it very, very Spanish. I know that's a, very confusing. Okay, now, like, like I said... Henry Charles Leia is an excellent guide for this subject. Uh, he wrote tomes about the Spanish Inquisition and the Medieval Inquisition. But I'll be honest, he is very boring. I could not get through even the audiobook of his stuff when I tried listening to it on YouTube. No, 
seriously, you try it out and tell me I'm wrong. I'll put you can you can find the links in the show notes. Um, but luckily, there are other great historians who, since then, have also written about how the Inquisition functioned. Chief amongst them, in my humble opinion, are Luan Hamza and Henry Kamen. Now, Luan Hamza is the editor and translator of the Spanish Inquisition, an anthology of sources, and Henry Kamen is the author of the Spanish Inquisition, a book. Both are excellent historians who not only help uh, le- help you learn a lot more about the Inquisition, but make it much more interesting to Leia's work. And they also revise this a bit, because it was published a hundred years ago, and um, things have been learned since then, I guess. Uh, now, by the 13th century, the Inquisition took a pretty standard form. The Spanish Inquisition copied this form. Tribunals consisted of two inquisitors, an alguacil, or a bailiff, a fiscal, or prosecutor, and two calificadores, I think I'm saying that right, qualifiers is the word in English, and these are trained theologians who act as part of the jury. They qualified uh, the decision, I guess. Um, So right off the bat, this is going to give you an idea of the sort of justice that is meted out by the Inquisition. The jury consists of five members. Um, The two calificadores, by the way, are paid by the Inquisition, just so you know. And then there's the Two other members of the uh, jury are the two inquisitors. The fifth is one would be a local clergy. So literally four-fifths of the jury was not comprised of the accused's peers. At any rate, the prosecutor, or the fiscal, by the way, was not only in charge of interrogating witnesses, that the Fiscal is also in charge of the physical and mental torture that goes along with the inquisitorial trials. Now, the alguacil, or bailiff, was personally responsible for jailing the defendant, of course, and um, actually, you know, generally would actually commit the torture as ordered by the fiscal. Now, in addition to all of these uh, individuals, though, inquisitorial courts all employed three secretaries who recorded court proceedings and testimony of both accuser and accused. Now, beyond that, inquisitors also hired other auxiliaries uh, named familiars, which was, being a familiar was considered an honor for uh, the people who were chosen for this role. And a high proportion of familiars were uh, people who owned noble titles. Now, one of the chief duties of the familiar was to arrest those accused of heresy. Um, With that said, the familiar was also a collaborator and a spy. Um, Not really a position uh, that, in my opinion, not really some... A familiar is not someone who deserves a lot of respect. The familiar was the lay servant of the Holy Office, charged with being ready at all times to perform duties in the service of the tribunal. In return, the familiar was allowed to bear arms to protect inquisitors, and they enjoyed a number of other privileges uh, that were uh, in common with other public officials. Um, Familiars are probably most notorious for their role as acting as informants. Now, 
With that said, though, most denunciations were technically made by ordinary Spaniards, not by familiars or other inquisitorial officials, but um, rather most denunciations took place uh, as a result of personal conflicts between neighbors, acquaintances, or family members. Um, now, inquisitorial trials involved the confiscation of property, and since this is the case, the familiar had perhaps more room to steal and to rob from people than almost maybe anybody in the whole system, even the inquisitors. Now, the inquisitors themselves were at the mercy of both the inquisitor general and the king. Mind you, sometimes they didn't really care much what an inquisitor did unless they were very, very corrupt. But the inquisitors were also technically employed by Rome. And so while they worked for the Spanish crown, they could actually be fired by the Spanish crown or by the Pope. And the Pope sometimes would um, do that, very rarely. But people did sometimes, more often than they got off, obviously, they would appeal to Rome for leniency, um, especially if an accused person thought that they could prove that an individual inquisitor or something like that was being unfair. Um, but the familiar, in contrast to the inquisitor, was really only answerable to the inquisitor who employed them. The familiar himself was a layman. Any crime, though, he committed was under the jurisdiction of the inquisitorial justice, not secular justice. So this essentially meant that familiars had free reign to do pretty much whatever they wanted as long as they didn't get their inquisitor upset. King Philip II wrote a letter to the Inquisitor General, to his Inquisitor General, in 1574, uh, and he admitted, quote, We all know that in the past there have been very great irregularities, and I can assure you that I saw it in Valencia with my own eyes, unquote. He was speaking of familiars. The Council of Aragon likewise complained in 1632 that familiars who committed crimes were sure to escape with impunity, relying on, as they did, on the intervention of their protectors, the Inquisitors. Now, it probably doesn't help much, uh, the, the, the fact that uh, uh, familiars were able to escape justice, that the Inquisition, it probably didn't help that they were recruiting their familiars from some of the highest social circles in Spain and especially in the port cities, um, where there's a lot of wealth. Uh, in those places, familiars generally consisted of people from the nobility and the wealthiest merchant families in Spain. In practice, in parts of the rural inland regions of Spain, sometimes it, it was more likely to find quote-unquote poor peasants uh, in the job of familiar. At any rate, a less infamous occupation than familiar was the commissario. The commissarios likewise helped inquisitors, though they did so with paperwork and the religious aspects of the holy office, um, putting together their ceremonies and stuff like that. They were mainly chosen from amongst the rural clergy of Spain, and they are not nearly as interesting to talk about as the familiars, what with their you know, with the, with the familiars carrying weapons and arresting people, sometimes spying on people. The, the commissaria was perhaps the more vital job. I mean, paperwork is pretty much that important, seriously, and boring. 
but commissarios frequently passed on denunciations to regional inquisitors. Um, they often put together the trials and everything, all the logistics for everything. Without this essential help, the Inquisition literally would have been unable to carry out its own role, uh, except in perhaps some of the biggest cities of Spain. Now, when the Inquisition strolled into town, um, their first step that they took was to initialize a law called an Edict of Grace. Now, essentially, the Inquisitors explained possible heresies during the Edict of Grace and encouraged the congregation, the local congregation, to self-incriminate themselves over any potential heresies that they had committed. And in return, they would get leniency. The Edict of Grace lasted from 30 to 40 days. And those who presented themselves before the court under its edicts were offered the possibility of reconciliation with the church without severe punishment. And that sounds pretty nice, right? Well, after this period of time was over, those who self-incriminated themselves were then questioned again. And this time they were told to incriminate others who were guilty of the same heresies. Those poor souls, in many cases, the friends, family, and neighbors of those who had self-incriminated, faced far harsher penalties. Now, generally speaking, heretics were convicted via three methods. First, family members might provide evidence against the accused, in cases like these, it appears that personal quarrels were generally involved. Now, uh, secondly, someone might be condemned by the hearsay of neighbors, uh, sometimes malicious neighbors. Many of these cases uh, show people reaching between 10 and 50 years into their memory to find incriminating evidence on the people they didn't like. Third you might run from the Inquisition, in which case you were automatically found guilty. If they found you, you would be convicted and burnt. If they didn't, they would burn you in effigy. Now, when someone was denounced by another person, the calificadores determined whether or not heresy had occurred. Um, the defendant was immediately would be immediately locked up and their property would be sequestered by the Inquisition, which, and then the defendant's property would then be used to pay for the procedural expenses of the, uh, of the trial. Uh, it would also help be used to help pay Inquisitor's salaries, and um, it would also be used to buy the food for the person imprisoned. So you would be paying for your own imprisonment um, completely if you were in inquisitorial jail. Often, this meant that the relatives of the defendant found themselves in dire straits, sometimes begging on the streets as a result of an inquisitorial trial. The trial itself consisted of a series of hearings. A defendant received counsel as defense. This was one of the two inquisitors, mind you. 
and the defense counsel, unsurprisingly perhaps, advised the defendant generally to admit their guilt and just, quote, speak the truth, unquote. The defendant did not get to learn about who his accuser or accusers were. Whatever information he learned of his crimes from whatever denunciations had been made were actually purposefully left vague so that the defendant could not figure it out. So as such, a, any defendant of the Inquisition would be basically left to the strategy of guessing what crimes he might have committed, and sometimes this worked, and other times, by trying to guess your crimes so that you could say, I didn't commit this crime, you might accidentally end up confessing to additional heresies. The defense could call its own witnesses. Um, these, hopefully, could demonstrate the defendant's Christian virtue or perhaps attempt to cast doubt on whatever the specific acu accusations were. Um, and additionally, some defendants uh, would make lists of enemies if they could name the individuals who were enemies, uh, who, if they could name the people who denounced them, uh, they might be able to invalidate the prosecution's witnesses. Um, additionally, a defendant could attempt to recuse an inquisitor or prosecutor, like I said. Uh, they could appeal um, that out of personal enmity. Uh, they could appeal that uh, case to the, uh, the, Supreme Cas the, the, Supre the Suprema, the uh, Supreme Council of the Inquisition, or, or the Papacy. Uh, but in practice, that strategy really only occurred with defendants who were very well off with these sorts of connections, you know. Um, now, of course, one other thing a defendant might try would be to simply remain silent and not mount a defense at all. In this case, or if the defendants did not confess, then torture would be employed. Now, I think it's actually easier for us to imagine torture being used as a punishment. Um, not that we would agree with that either, but for example, if a slave... Uh, or a sailor tried to run away, and the master or captain whipped that person. Uh, but the Inquisition used torture as not as a punishment, but just as a means to elicit confessions. Which, in fact, you might only understand, really, if you have an older brother or sister. Now, this might seem crazy, but there were rules for how the Inquisition conducted its torture, Torture was allowed within the Inquisition when, quote, sufficient proofs to confirm the culpability of the accused have been gathered by other means, and every method of negotiation has been tried and exhausted, unquote. Now, which basically means if two people denounced someone uh, and that person did not confess, Confessions obtained through torture could not be used to convict or sentence anybody technically. They needed to be reaffirmed by a subsequent confession, which would happen the next day. The Inquisition, in fact, got around this restriction by never technically ending the torture session. Rather, the torture session was, quote, suspended, unquote. So if a confession was elicited during the torture it would need to be ratified on a subsequent day. And if the confession was revoked, the prisoner could then be tortured again because it had only been suspended. Now, on the other hand, 
most historians believe that most prisoners simply saw the instruments of torture and that itself provoked the confession. So in practice, torture was less, far less common um, than otherwise it might have been. Now, the Inquisition was prohibited from, quote, maiming, mutilating, drawing blood, or causing any sort of permanent damage, unquote. Church law forbid the shedding of blood. Inquisitors worked with a list of approved torture methods as a result, which included waterboarding, the rack, and an especially horrible torture uh, of hanging by the limbs. Now, the Spanish called waterboarding la toca. La toca involved basically pouring large quantities of water down the defendant's nose and throat um, to simulate drowning. I know most of my listeners in the United States, at least, will uh, be familiar with waterboarding torture, since it is apparently quite a favorite weapon of torture of the CIA. But at any rate, anyway, the, the, in Spanish, um, it was also quite... Uh, excuse me. In Spanish, the, the next one, in Spanish, the rack is called el potro. On el potro, the prisoner is laid out and tied at the wrists and ankles spread eagle. They are bound with cords that were then tightened on a rack. Each turn of the rack twists the ropes, and that put increasing pressure on the joints of the prisoner. And finally, the hanging torture was called la garucha. It was undisputedly the most feared torture utilized by the Inquisition. It involved a prisoner having their wrists tied behind their back and then hung up into the air by their wrists from behind, pulled into the air, and then being violently dropped. The prisoner's fall would be stopped just a couple of feet from the ground in an intentional effort to dislocate that person's shoulders. Prisoners were warned, of course, that any injuries they suffered were their own fault and repeatedly were asked during the torture to confess. Now, just in case you're the kind of sociopath who thinks that all of this doesn't sound bad, let me tell you, there was no age limit on this torture. The Inquisition records uh, talk about women uh, between 70 and 90 years old being subjected to the potro. There are elderly people who died on occasion from this bloodless torture. In Valencia, there are records of a girl who was 13 but subjected to torture. Many of those who were subjected to the torture were left in a sorry state, according to Henry Kenyon. Cayman, excuse me. They, uh, their limbs, which are irreparably broken, they were, and like I said, there are a few people who died under the torture. Now, the Spanish kept meticulous records, the Inquisition. Wow, I mean, it's amazing. So, before we move on from the topic of inquisitorial torture, I think I should present you, um, one example. This is what the Spanish Inquisition wrote down about the torture they conducted during the trial of Elvira del Campo, who was accused in 1567 of secretly practicing Judaism. Elvira was denounced by the Inquisition by two of her household employees, 
so we can make of her as an employer what we will, but the employees told the inquisitors that she would not eat pork. Now, Elvira was probably what we would call in 2020 a total Karen, I, I think. But even with that in mind, I'm 100% certain that even a total Karen did not deserve what happened to Elvira del Campo. She was pregnant when she was arrested, in fact. What follows, though, took, took place shortly after her baby was born. Quote, She was carried to the torture chamber and told to tell the truth. When she said she had nothing to say, she was ordered to be stripped and again admonished, but was silent. When stripped, she said, Senores, I have done all that is said of me, and I bear false witness against myself. For I do not want to see myself in such trouble. Please, God, I have done nothing. She was told not to bring false testimony against herself, but to tell the truth. The tying of her arms was commenced. She said, I have told the truth. What have I to tell? One cord was applied to the arms and twisted, and she was admonished to tell the truth. She screamed and said, I have done all they say. Unquote. The Inquisitors began questioning Elvira del Campo after that about specifically what she had done. She claimed that the reason she didn't eat pork was that it made her sick, but that she had in fact done everything. As per the rules of the Inquisition, of course, she did not get to know her accusers' names or what specific crimes she committed. So she found it very difficult to do to uh, tell the Inquisitors what crime she had committed. She begged again and again for them to loosen her and she would tell them the truth. The Inquisitorial scribes instead recorded that another turn was ordered. After that, quote, Oh, my arms, my arms. She repeated many times, Oh, wretched me, I will tell you all that is wanted, senores. They are breaking my arms. Loosen me a little. I did everything that is said of me. Del Campo was again told to truly detail exactly what it was she did. I don't know what I have to tell. Don't you see what a weak woman I am? Oh, oh, my arms are breaking. More turns were ordered. She cried. Oh, 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 my arms. More turns were given. She continued to beg. Release me. They're killing me. Senor, do you not see how these people are killing me? Senor, I did it. For God's sake, let me go. She said it many times. Senores, senores, they are tearing out my soul. Order them to loosen me. Finally, she said, senor, I did it to observe that law. She was asked, what law? 
the law that the witnesses say. I declare it all, senor. I don't remember what law it was. She was asked repeatedly, what law? And she replied, if I knew what to say, I would say it. Lord, bear witness that they are killing me without my being able to confess. She was told that if she wished to tell the truth, she should do so. Because if she did not tell the truth, the water would be poured down her throat. Well, the water was poured down her throat while her nostrils were plugged. She said that she could not speak and she was a sinner. Elvira del Campo was transferred from the potro to a table. Excuse me, I messed that quote up. But She was told that if she wished to tell the truth before the water was poured down her throat, while her nostrils were plugged, she should do so and discharge her conscience. She said she could not speak, and she was a sinner. Excuse me. Elvira del Campo was then transferred from the potro to a table and the linen toca, where a funnel was stuck down her throat and a jar of water was poured down. She clamored for confession, saying she was dying. Not long after, del Campo appears to lose consciousness. She was told that the torture would be continued but was recorded as remaining silent through additional questioning and waterboarding. In conclusion, the scrobe wrote, quote, The inquisitors, seeing her exhausted by the torture, ordered it to be suspended, unquote. Elvira del Campo and other prisoners of the Inquisition were always presumed guilty. Almost never was anyone acquitted outright. If you were found guilty and a confession was elicited, then the suspect, you, or if that was you, would be reconciled. Now, if the crime for a lesser heresy, uh, it, that, a greater, greater heresy would be reconciled. A lesser heresy, excuse me, would be penanced. Now, penanced crimes, like blasphemy or bigamy, were lighter crimes, but... If you were convicted and penanced, you would be required to pay fines to cover the cost of the trial. And this was, of course, also the same for reconciled heretics, who might have also been imprisoned for years. Um, many reconciled people, in fact, ended up bankrupt with their property confiscated to pay for the trial against them. Uh, in addition, anyway, if either a reconciled or a penanced heretic was found guilty again, they were subject to the ultimate punishment. Death by burning at the stake. This was called relaxation to the secular arm, because priests can't kill people, of course. And so the Inquisition instead handed over condemned persons to the secular authorities for execution. Now, if someone confessed and route to the execution, well, they would be politely strangled and then burnt after they were killed. If not then that person would be burned alive in what would have been excruciating agony. Now, there is no formal inquisitorial trial in the same way that you're imagining, like, one taking place today. 
like one process that takes place in one room from day to day, from start to finish, like a, like a modern trial. Uh, an inquisitorial trial was a series of audiences held in a courtroom setting, uh, but not necessarily in one place, where both the prosecution and the defense submitted their arguments and then a series of interrogations that would be carried out by the inquisitors in the presence of the notaries uh, that would be happening in a jail, uh, like a, or a dungeon, or a torture chamber type setting. Um, so you would have one or more courthouses and a torture chamber, and that would be uh, the inquisitorial trial. At any rate. Now, after the case was made and concluded, um, it would be voted on by a body called the Consulta de Fe, which, uh, like I said earlier, included the two inquisitors, so the two prosecutors. Well, one technically worked as the quote-unquote defendant during that. That's the person who is begging you to confess while you're being tortured. That's your defense lawyer. The two calificadores are the, the two uh, professional jurors that the Inquisition pays. And generally, they're, we're less biased against the defendant than the prosecutors, I mean. But still, as I said, they are professional jurists paid by the Inquisition. Um, these four, joined by one representative of the local bishop in whichever archdiocese the trial was taking place. And these five officials, four of whom are employed by the Inquisition and two of whom literally just finished uh, trying to make the defendant confess, then all vote on the guilt or innocence of the accused. So very few people were found innocent, generally. One was either a little bit guilty and penanced, and deserved to be shame-walked at the auto de fe, wearing a San Benito, where they were very guilty and reconciled, and about to receive a far worse fate. The defense was not allowed to cross-examine any witnesses, and besides drawing up the articles of defense, was allowed to make no arguments. The defense counsel, like most of the jury, like I said, was one of the inquisitors. Thus, the inquisitors were judge and jury, prosecution and defense, and in the words of Henry Kamen, quote, the prisoner's fate depended almost entirely on the mood and character of the inquisitors, unquote. The most common form of punishment for prisoners of the Inquisition was their forced participation in the auto de fe, which is a ceremony that the, it literally translates as an act of faith. It's kind of similar to the famous Game of Thrones scene uh, where convicted heretics were shame-walked through town. Um, in an auto de fe, a con uh, convicted uh, heretic would be walking barefoot and wearing a special yellow tunic um, with a giant yellow cross on it. Um, that's the San Benito, just so everyone in town could tell just what terrible heretics they were. Um, the yellow smock... You know, it's called a San Benito. It's got a big red cross on it, and it would then, after the auto de fe, be hung for a specific length of time in, in, in public, in the church that the accused belonged to, so that the whole community would know for years to come to shame the person. Um, their name would then be, would also be written on the San Benito, you know, so you could tell whose it was. Autos de fe were popular events. And everybody came to watch as the sentences were called out publicly. 
Some of the defendants wore knotted ropes along with their San Benito. The number of knots they would have on the rope would signify the number of lashes that they would get for their crimes. Um, so, you know, you'd walk over from your sentence over to the guy who would then whip you, and, and he'd count the ropes, you know, the knots on the rope. Oh, ten, you know. Um, others were sentenced to perpetual prison in monasteries and convents, and lesser penalties like these, um, if you think that's a lesser penalty, uh, you know, could also include big monetary fines, um, fine, you know, Penalties like uh, the, the person might be forced to pay for a certain number of, of masses or, or something like that. Um, uh, like I said, flogging, as you can tell by the rope with the knots in it, was a very common punishment. Um, traditional uh, European Christian tradition dictated that flogging was only to be used against those of low social status, though, uh, just out of practice. Um, the accused would be whipped through the streets after being stripped to the waist if they were male, and they would be flogged as they marched through the town. Often they would be mounted on an ass to, to greater their, their shame. Often the passersby and children who were watching would hurl stones at the accused. And there was no age limit on subjecting both men and women to flogging, Girls in their teens, women in their 80s, there's records of both of that being uh, flogged. 200 lashes is the maximum sentence I saw. Uh, 100 lashes, very common. The worst punishment, other than being straight up executed, of course, would be, though, not not even 200 lashes or anything like that, but uh, enslavement in the king's galley fleet. That's generally a death sentence as well. I... Technically, I, 200 lashes sounds like a death sentence to me, too. Maybe even 100. I, I don't know. Anyway, generally, uh, being sentenced to galley life was actually a new addition to the Spanish Inquisition. So unlike almost everything I've said so far that is something different than the medieval Inquisition, um, it was an idea of Ferdinand. He found it uh, just to be a great way to get a cheap source of labor for his extensive navies. Um, foreign Protestants and Moriscos, uh, which is uh, Muslim converts to Christianity. Remember, you have to be Christian to be uh, convicted of heresy. These are the prisoners who are most frequently subjected to the punishment of becoming a galley slave. Uh, about 50 men a year were sent to the galleys as punishment by the Inquisition during the second half of the 16th century, if that is to be our guide. Most of the accused were sentenced actually to more than one punishment at a time, by the way. Alonso Ribeiro was given four years of banishment from Granada, six years on the galleys, and 100 strokes of the lash for falsifying documents. Francisco de Alarcón received five years banishment, five more years in the galleys, 200 lashes, and a monetary fine for the crime of blasphemy. In addition, sometimes the heirs of convicted heretics were declared infamous, which was a legal category in Spain, to be infamous, And being infamous would prevent the descendants of an infamous person, the infamous family, 
That family could no longer hold public office, carry arms, ride horses, or enter clerical orders. My copy of Early Modern Spain, A Documentary History, a great book if you're interested in some of the documents of early Spain. Um, anyway, it has a great contemporaneous description of an auto de fe. Uh, this uh, account occurred in the city of Seville in 1559. It is translated from the Spanish by Hans J. Hillebrand. Quote, On the square of San Fernando, two large platforms were erected, one for the inquisitors and the cathedral chapter, the supreme tribunal, and the monks of San Francisco. The other platform was for the penitents, the clergy, and monks of other orders. An altar was erected here for the licensate Juan Gonzalez. On one side of the square, another large platform was erected for the town, the Duchess of Behar, other marquesses, and, and, and eminent gentlemen. Excuse me. Many noble ladies were found here. All around the square were numerous scaffolds upon which stood a great throng of people. It was said that some people who came to see the auto had arrived three days early. The crowd of people was so huge that it was impossible to find lodging in the city. Between two and three hundred men, equipped with lances, well-dressed and decorated, were selected to accompany the penitents. They were a pleasure to behold. They marched orderly with drums and flags to the castle, where they received the penitents, with whom they then walked to the square. About four o'clock in the morning, Fifty priests arrived with the cross of St. Anne and went to the castle, where forty monks of all orders had gathered. Together they accompanied the penitents, eighty penitents with habit and candles, twenty-one persons condemned to fire with a statue of Francisco de Cafra, who had escaped. Then, they came, then came the magistrates with their marshal. Then the cathedral chapter with the sextons in front. Finally came the inquisitors with their banner. Juan Ponce de Leon was turned over to them so that his confession could be heard, and he brought back to the Catholic faith. He was a damned Lutheran who, despite two years in prison, had not given up his Lutheran ways. The rector heard his confession. This Don Juan was sentenced to die at the stake. He died with many tears of remorse over his sins, unquote. It is hard for me to say which is more insidious. The fact that people were tortured and killed for thought crimes. Or the fact that every single sentence for every single one of those victims involved the confiscation of their property. Well, obviously, the fact that the, the, the killing, the worst part, but really, at the moment of arrest, a suspect's possessions were inventoried and sequestered, and from this point, the trial proceeded. You might be surprised to learn that the Inquisition, in fact, didn't actually really have much funding. The confiscation of property was, quote, far and away the most important source, unquote, of revenue. A process called sequestration, this was the standard punishment for heresy in both medieval and Spanish inquisitions. Property of arrested individuals was immediately sequestrated by officials and was much dreaded by Spaniards. Sequestered property 
was used to pay for jailing the accused, and if the accused was in jail long enough, this meant that his or her dependents would be driven into poverty. As such, the sequestration of property could literally amount to confiscation even if the person was acquitted. Now, since acquittal meant admitting an error, acquittals were very rare. Now, in fairness, the medieval Inquisition never acquitted anyone, so the fact that the accused in Spain were rarely acquitted was actually an improvement in justice from the medieval to Spanish Inquisitions. Cayman provides us with statistics for the Tribunal of Valencia from the years 1566 to 1609. And this gives us an idea of what happened to those accused by the Inquisition. He took a look at 3,075 trials during that period. 44.2% were penanced, 40.2% reconciled, 2.5% absolved, 9% suspended, 2.1% burnt in effigy, 2% burnt in person. Suspension of the trial sounds kind of decent, and if we include the percentage of trials that ended with suspension to the percentage of trials which ended in acquittal, that's 11.5% of the accused suspects who are not punished beyond sequestration of property to, you know, used to pay for the trial. Now, with that said, suspension was still very feared because it meant that the trial could, at any time, and for any reason, be resumed, and if that ever happened, the person that happened to would usually could expect a very severe punishment. In reality, uh, the reality is, is that there are numerous records of individuals who were punished by the Inquisition multiple times in their lives, sometimes with trials that took place decades apart. Now, prisoners had their goods confiscated at the beginning of the trial, and, and since this happened, often when they became free and had nothing, they faced a life of beggary. Now, anyway, the outcome of being penanced was the least of the punishments imposed. It came in two flavors, de levi, or a lesser penance, or de vehementi, or grave penance, my apologies, again, for pronunciation issues. Penitents swore to avoid sin in the future, and if they ever relapsed after this light penalty, they were subject to very severe punishments afterwards. They were condemned to wear a San Benito for a specific period of time and often had to pay a fine, and in addition, those convicted of grave offenses were subjected to the punishment of banishment from Spain or sometimes work on the galleys. Now, if you were reconciled... now. In theory, mind you, to be a sinner who is reconciled would be to be returned into the bosom of the church. At any rate, if you were reconciled by the Inquisition, you would receive the most severe penalties. In addition to the San Benito, very heavy fines, the accused person would generally be condemned to flogging, long spells in prison, or the galleys. Anyone accused of backsliding into heresy after being reconciled would be sent to the stake to be burnt. The first Inquisitor General of the Spanish Inquisition made a list of heresies which reconciled heretics had to avoid, or they could be burnt at the stake. As a relapsed heretic, the reconciled could not, quote, possess public office or benefices, nor 
May they be advocates, landlords, apothecaries, spice dealers, physicians or surgeons, or bleeders or public criers. They may not carry gold, silver, coral, pearls, or other things, nor precious stones. They may not wear any sort of silk or camlet, nor carry it on their clothes or belongings. They may not ride horses or carry arms their entire lives, under penalty of falling into relapse." Unquote. The worst punishment, of course, was being burnt at the stake. Two classes of accused qualified for the stake. Relapsed heretics and unrepentant heretics. Now, of course, considering that many people died before their trial concluded and many others fled, there were more people actually burnt in effigy than were burnt alive, but around 2% of those accused were, quote, relaxed, unquote, to the secular arm. Or, and, and well, excuse me, and uh, the secular arm would then execute them by burning. Or, if they repented at the last second, like I said, they would be strangled and then burnt after they were killed. Now, 2% isn't a whole lot, comparatively, you, you could say. But Henry Kamen reminds us that this punishment was almost exclusively used on heretics who were of Jewish or Muslim descent converts or the descendants of converts. For the minorities in Spain, the threat of being burnt at the stake was very real and much higher than 2%. While all accused individuals were required to pay for their own imprisonment and the cost of their trial, the guilty faced additional penalty in the form of sequestration proper a regular penalty for all major heretical crimes. In Spain, the principal victims of these confiscations just so happened to be rich conversos, which were converted Jewish families, whose, quote, wealth must have stirred many an orthodox spirit, unquote, according to Henry Kamen. I think that's a great line. Now, surprisingly, many Spaniards came to the conclusion that the Inquisition was designed to rob them. One citizen of Toledo, Hernando del Pulgar, wrote, quote, what great inquisitors of the faith they must be, to be finding heresies in the property of the peasants of the town of Fuensalida, which they rob and burn. Another, res uh, excuse me, a resident of Cuenca, excuse me, a different town, reported that inquisitorial victims, quote, they were burnt only for the money they had, unquote. Another agreed with him, quote, they burn only the well-off because they have property, the others they leave alone, unquote. In fact, one woman in 1501 uh, reportedly expressed alarm about the announced coming of the Inquisition to her neighbor, who retorted back, don't be afraid of being burnt, they're only after the money. In 1484, Catalina del Zamora was accused of the Inquisition by uh, accused by the Inquisition, excuse me, of asserting, quote, "This Inquisition that the fathers are carrying is as much for taking property from the conversos as for defending the faith." And on another occasion to have stated, "It is the goods that are the heretics." Unquote. That assertion may even have become kind of a, a popular saying 
in, in Spain. At any rate, if we're to judge by the complaint made by Barcelona city authorities 25 years later, who in 1509 complained that, quote, goods are not heretics, unquote. So how about that, Catalina de Zamora, a potential great dude of history? With that said, I don't want to give you the wrong idea that this is a steady source of income. Because by its very nature, the idea that you're going to arrest wealthy people and you're going to confiscate their property, well, that means you're not really talking about a reliable source of income. I mean, so in the early years of the Inquisition, there was a lot of money being made. But afterwards, you're basically talking about occasional windfalls of great wealth between years of inquisitorial tribunals desperately looking for income to pay for prosecutors, administrators, prisoner maintenance, and the increasingly large and expensive autos de fe, which quickly grew to become gigantic public spectacles. Now, between the reliance on finding wealthy heretics, the graft of corrupt familiars and inquisitors, and the fact that Ferdinand and Isabella never really intended the Inquisition to be a money-making operation in the first place, but instead want to bind the nations of Castile and Aragon together, well, the tribunals themselves were in near-constant debt. Now, Regardless of whether or not individual inquisitors or their servants were getting rich. Now, this is an important distinction because it helps illustrate the point of the primary purpose of the Inquisition. It never was to root out heresy or to rob people. Now, obviously, these are both important side motivating factors. But the primary purpose of the Inquisition was to instill fear in the people of Castile and Aragon and bind them together under Ferdinand and Isabella as one Spanish nation. The Inquisition was founded in 1478 under the auspices of Ferdinand and Isabella and with the acquiescence of the Pope. Now, technically, it didn't get up and running until 1480, but that's besides the point. Now, the reasoning of the creation of the Spanish institution was just pure Machiavellian politics. Spain, not really a country, but the region was riven by civil war. In the years leading up to the creation of the Inquisition, Ferdinand and Isabella created this institution to unify the two nations, which we should remember were literally being formed as a result of their being married. So institutionally and procedurally, the Spanish Inquisition is exactly like the medieval Inquisition, but in other ways, it's radically different. The power dynamic was in favor of the monarchy, uh, you know, not the, the papacy. Now, in addition, the types of heresy investigated were different. In the Middle Ages, the Inquisition dealt mainly with alternative Christian sects who were involved with disputes over the authority of the papacy to make things really simplified. They're, you know, sort of like early precursor Protestant sects in some ways. Now, incidentally, last episode I argued that until the invention of America, espousing revolutionary ideas like that weren't popular enough in Europe to achieve a reformation. So in case you haven't checked out our last episode, please do do that. Now, anyway, in Spain, 
The Inquisition, though, first and foremost, dealt with one heresy, the heresy of Judaizing. Now, in part, that's because Jews were able to successfully work as conduits of trade between Muslims and Christian lands. Um, and so because of that, Spain had the largest population of Jews in Western Europe until 1391. Now, at that time, there were some particularly, I don't know how else to describe them, vicious Dominican friars who began preaching that hatred towards towards the, the Jewish populations in Spain, and that provoked the destruction of various Jewish neighborhoods and the forced conversion of a lot of people. Uh, and these people are called conversos. A hundred years later, some of them were secretly still Jewish, as you might imagine. Others were Catholic. I mean, Catholic as could be, but that's never what the Inquisition was about. The Spanish Inquisition was a racist institution that focused on the descendants of Jews that thrived on popular support amongst, amongst Spain's old Christian population. I, I, it wasn't always, Spain wasn't always like that. Now, I, I should say, in fact, once, the Jews in Spain thought of their time there as a golden age. Uh, I mean, okay, so there's a diaspora that follows the second destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the hands of the Romans in 70 CE. Um, ever since that time, Spain held the largest population of Jews in Western Europe. Uh, through the rule of the Visigoths, through the rule of the Muslims, Jews flourished, and they continued to do so when the Reconquista started. It wasn't until the 14th century that that changed. Now, to be clear, racism always existed, obviously, there were Visigoths and Jews fighting sometimes. There were Muslims and Jews fighting sometimes. There were Christians and Jews fighting sometimes. But Spain wasn't really an intolerant place, truly intolerant until the 14th century. During the Reconquista, at various times, during conquest events and wars, Jewish communities, there were several Jewish communities that received incentives from Christian kings in order, so that they would switch sides, basically, from Muslim to Christian rule. Now, the Spanish historians call this period of time from 70 CE when Jews begin to flee to Spain up until the 14th century. They call this period Convivencia. It's a society of coexistence. Now, it's easy, uneasy coexistence at times. Like I said, there are, it's not a perfect coexistence. And the communities of Christians, Jews, and Muslims never exist on equal terms during this period. At times, there are Muslims are, are superior, Christians are superior, the Jews are never really superior. But all three faiths participate in that society. And this goes on all the way up to say, you can see this in 1470, for example, in the town of Ucles, if I'm saying that right, which experienced a horrific drought in 1470. In response, quote, there were many processions of Christians as well as of Muslims and Jews to pray for water, unquote. In towns like these, nobody saw any harm in different faiths praying together, for example. But 20 years later, one of those citizens of Ucles Hernan Sanchez Castro was denounced to the Inquisition. It was alleged that Castro, quote, 
sent out from the church together with other Christians in the procession. And when they reached the square where the Jews were with the Torah, he joined the procession of the Jews and left the processions of the Christians." Unquote. Diego Gonzalez was a poor orphan in Spain when he was a boy. And when he was older, he remembered accepting alms from Muslims and Jews as well as from Christians. Though Gonzalez was a Christian, he received kindness uh, from these other people. And in fact, he'd even picked up a few Hebrew words from some of the Jews he had met when he was uh, an orphan. And as an adult, he asserted, quote, The Jew can find salvation in his own faith, just as the Christian can in his, unquote. Diego Gonzalez, uh, who grew up from the orphan boy to become a Catholic priest 20 years later, said that, was then arrested for pro-Jewish tendencies and was burnt as a heretic. So there's two things that are true. Spain became less tolerant over time, but also the Inquisition did not arise from, quote, a society dominated exclusively by zealots, unquote. As the Reconquista wound down in the 14th century, many of Spain's faithful crusading Christians began to grow increasingly envious of their Jewish neighbors, who, like I said, some of whom had ancestors had received benefits, which they in some cases were still in possession of, like land and favorable trading contracts as a result of their switching sides from Muslim rule to supporting the Catholic kings during the wars of the Reconquista. In 1355, an angry mob in Toledo burned Jewish homes and murdered nearly 1,200 Jews. In 1371, the king of Castile and Leon, Henry II, who is also known by his nickname El Fratricide, you know, just so you know, he was, must have been a great guy. Anyway, in 1371, Henry decreed that all Jews had to wear distinctive badges and could no longer have Christian names in the kingdoms of Castile and Leon. Twenty years after that, in 1391, mobs in Seville went on a rampage that was started by the Dominican Archbishop Fernand Martinez. Excuse me, I had to burp. Spain for Christians was their catchphrase. Not make America great again, no. Spain for Christians. They robbed and burned the Jewish quarter and 400 men, women, and children were killed. Thousands more converted in a mass conversion that saved their lives. In these mass conversions, maybe 35,000 people became Christians. Well, I mean, legally speaking, at least. Now, before I want to get any further, I want to make clear that kind of from that point on, the Spanish Jews and Spanish conversos aren't really one singular identity. Now, as the 16th century goes on, Spanish Jews form part of a larger network of Sephardic Jewish communities that they're actually going to get kicked out in 1492. Uh, and those communities exist 
across parts of Western Europe. Now, conversos were, generally speaking, outwardly Catholic, at least, and specifically just existed within Spain and Portugal. And so the conversos might range from anywhere from uh, doing as much as possible to hold on to their traditions, um, all the way to being super faithful Catholics. And while I'm at it, this goes for the Moriscos, or the converted Muslim communities in Spain, and frankly for the what the Sp- Spanish thought of as the old Christian families of Spain. They might go from anywhere from being super faithful Catholics to, dare I say, agnostic. Now, the Sephardim were the Jews who would not convert. After 1492, they formed kind of a stateless diaspora and were dispersed across the Western world. And as the 16th century went on across the Atlantic, now the Sephardim never obtained political power, but their dispersal through the Atlantic, through across Western Europe, and into the Ottoman Empire creates trade links that do get them some significant economic power in the 17th century. And I know this is getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but when they get that, well, let's just say that some of these Sephardim never forget how they were betrayed by Spain, and uh, there will be pirates. Now, at any rate, the creation of the conversos, these new Christians, as they were called, created a lot of debate within Spanish society. So, basically, you've got racists in Spain who create tens of thousands of Christians, and then later, racists in Spain who are very concerned about these new Christians. Were they sincere in their beliefs? Should they be allowed to hold public office? Should they be allowed to enter the priesthood? Well, they were baptized, so... Well, the law was yes. And for the record, both Rome and many other Spaniards answered yes to those questions. But a lot of Spaniards weren't so sure. In fact, the race riots of 1391, which result in these mass conversions, like I said, all they do is create more distrust and racism in Spain than there ever was before. And basically, you can divide the conversos into three groups. Not all Spaniards did this, mind you. They were all conversos. You know, they're all Jews. Some were enthusiastic Christians. A lot of war. Now, others, some of the, you know, mainly the wealthy merchants and nobles, were able to quietly honor their Jewish roots and publicly remained converted. Now, with all of that said, being one of 35,000 forcibly convertible, like convert or die, meant that most of them were, quote, far from sincere in the new faith, unquote. Now, incidentally, the forced conversions, you know, these are just making these same people who are massacring the Jews even more suspicious of them because now, say a hundred years later, after the 1391 uh, bloody riot, now you've got descendants of those people who are converted and can hold public office, become priests, and some of them do. And there are conversos who... Now that they're Christians, these same 
Jewish families begin climbing Spanish society in the 15th century. And so there's places where, say, that before 1391 in Seville, where there's a lot of Jews who live, and then they're mass converted to Christianity. And and, in places like that, they take a lot of power in Spanish government. In Cuenca, 85% of the city council was held by conversos by the in the 15th, in the, by the late 15th century. And simultaneously, obviously, as this converso power grows, anger against it grows. In Toledo, conversos were banned from municipal offices in 1449, in Ciudad Real, 1467. Now, in that same year, there was another bloody riot. This time in Toledo, many conversos were killed. In 1473, a race riot took place in Cordova. Now, believe it or not, during this same period, this build-up to the Inquisition, there are Muslims living within Christian society. They're called mujahideers by the Christians, and they actually weren't as affected by the religious tension. Now, there were fewer of them in Castile, where most of this agitation has taken place. Um, And in Aragon, the... Mujahideres tended to live in their own separate communities rather than alongside Christians in cities like Jewish people did. Now, this too changes just later, but in 1487, for example, the armies of Ferdinand and Isabella conquer the city of Malaga within the kingdom of Granada. Now, for example, how this is starting to change, uh, now, whereas you've got... Jewish people being dehumanized in 1391, um, Muslim people really aren't feeling this same pressure at the time. There was actually kind of a, a window between the 13th century and the conquest of Granada uh, where tensions cooled a bit. But in 1487, Ferdinand and Isabella conquer the city of Malaga within the kingdom of Granada. And in the words of Henry Cayman, uh, the incident gives, quote, a hint of a new savagery among the Christians, unquote. The entire population of Malaga that survived the conquest was enslaved. Now, I think it's worth considering why there seems to have been more anger against the Jews and not the Muslims. And obviously, there's a lot of anger towards both. And um, the Jews and the Muslims were both seen as continuing threats to hard-won Christian reconquests in Spain by the, the people who didn't like them at the time. Why isn't the Inquisition focused on the more obviously dangerous threat of Islam, you might ask? I, that's a great question. I, I would ask that, too. I Considering there's an Ottoman Empire out there, a powerful Moroccan state to the south, and the date and formation of the Inquisition, around 1480, there's still a Muslim kingdom in Granada on the south end of Iberia. Now, with all that in mind, the military and political danger of a Muslim counterattack was very, very real. I mean, the Ottomans capture Constantinopolis in the mid-15th century. They 
extended both military and naval power to the west after that, and the success of the reconquest um, in comparison, but excuse me, with the success of the reconquest, though, despite that, it meant that fewer Spaniards saw Islam as attractive as it had been when the Muslims were successfully conquering Spain, when the opposite was true, the conquest, not the reconquest. So even though globally, perhaps, the Ottomans are seen as a very dangerous enemy at the time, in um, the Spanish theologian uh, wasn't as worried in the late 15th century of Muslims as they were of Jews. Um, at any rate, in addition, because because the Spain was being reconquered, the theologian could say, well, you know, proof that we, you know, it, Christianity is, is better is that we're winning. Islam came after the Christian Bible, in fact, and necessarily false and heretical. It, a lot of uh, Spaniards argued that, that Islam was the beast of revelation. And um, at any rate, for, for reasons like this, in part, I think the Spanish aren't fully centered. The Inquisition isn't fully centered on persecuting Moriscos in Spain until later, after they punish the Conversos. Because on the other hand, the Jews are a different story altogether. Now, politically and militarily, unlike Islam, they are unimportant. And, but Islam could also be dismissed as part of the apocalypse. But Judaism literally could not be dismissed as heresy or aberration. The Old Testament, of course, being the Hebrew Bible, renamed from Torah to Old Testament, with a New Testament added at the end of it explaining Christ. So Judaism and Islam have a similar relationship, and as a result, Jewish society kind of existed as minorities within both Christian and Muslim lands in a similar um, position. And in this atmosphere, um, as the reconquest was successful, um, because they, Jews act as trade conduits between Christian and Muslim lands in some cases, some people are additionally starting to see them as agents of Muslims, or at least sympathizers who just can't be trusted. Now, I tell you all of this because I want to kind of, if I can, give you an idea of the atmosphere of Spain that exists when the 18-year-old Isabella of Castile and the 17-year-old Ferdinand of Aragon get married, thus uniting the kingdoms for the first time. So in 1469, these two teenagers get married against this backdrop of increasing racial animosity. Now, from Isabella's perspective, marrying the king of Aragon lets her do two things. First, she and her family, and basically most of the Castilian nobility, want to expand. Joining with the crown of Aragon, the other expansionist Christian kingdom, is a great way to do that. In addition, marrying a Spanish-speaking king gave her ammunition against her internal rivals. Because the French and the Portuguese royal families were also trying to woo the Queen of Castile, 
but uh, they lost out to the Ferdinand of Aragon, who, like I said, was seven fucking teen. And from his perspective, was desperate to increase the power of Aragon because the French kept threatening his kingdom. Now, surprising maybe no one. This Romeo and Juliet pair encountered strong political resistance in both of their kingdoms to their marriage. Many Aragonese noblemen were angry that Ferdinand was forced to offer up significant concessions in order to help mollify Castilian noblemen who were likewise fearful of an Aragonese takeover to go along with their new Aragonese king, the bastard. And so, to mollify this dissent, both Aragon and Castile specifically kept their own laws in the concessions. And although Ferdinand would be king of both, he promised, in order to be allowed to be king of both, that he would be a very, very good king. I also want to point out that he promised that, quote, once we have these kingdoms and domains of Castile and Leon in our joint power, we will be obliged to wage war on the Moors, enemies of the holy Catholic faith, as the other preceding Catholic monarchs will have done, and I will pay for the expenses of the fortresses of the frontier of the Moors, as other kings have done, unquote. You know, so obviously Ferdinand is a super nice guy, as I said, as I have said before. Now, I'm being sarcastic in saying that, but also as an American, I would like to say, wow, you know, how refreshing it must have been to have a king who paid for his wars. Now, without all of this backdrop information, the reason I'm giving you all of that, I think it's easy to accidentally ascribe the wrong motivations for the Spanish Inquisition. See, the apologist might argue that Ferdinand and Isabella were spurred by their Catholic faith to allow the Inquisition to form. And, and that's, there is real, that's real, the idea that there are people who literally kind of agreed to the Inquisition because what they, they, they thought they would be saving souls because of heresy. Now, the cynic, on the other hand, you know, as opposed to the apologist, might argue that the monarchs began the Inquisition out of personal racism, or more likely that it was out of greed, like many Spaniards believed, that the Inquisition was founded in order to rob them. But Ferdinand's own great-grandmother was Jewish. Some of his favorite people were Jews. He protected his Jewish friends from the Inquisition. He and Isabella were religious, though. In, in addition, and, and they both seem to have enjoyed the money they got from robbing inquisitorial victims. But I'm telling you, these were all secondary side effects. The main goal was unifying the nation of Spain. Remember, Spain isn't a country. We're talking about Ferdinand and Isabella, the king and queen of Aragon and Castile, and these two places have been engaged in civil wars. Ferdinand didn't hate the Jews, but he knew a lot of old Christian conservative nobles in Spain who did. As such, the real reason Ferdinand and Isabella formed the Spanish Inquisition was Machiavellianism, a demonstration of real politique. 
See, the Catholic monarchs of Spain, or at least their, since they were teenagers, perhaps their advisors, uh, told them that if they allowed a Spanish Inquisition and they were in control of it and not the Pope, well, that would enable the creation of a larger and lasting Spanish empire. The Inquisition was Ferdinand and Isabella's way of creating an institution designed to outlast the unification of Aragon and Castile originally brought about by their marriage. And just FYI, this whole is Aragon and Castile a new nation of Spain thing wasn't even really settled until 1520, which is after both of them are dead. And the revolt of the Comuneros occurs back to that topic later in the episode. But okay, regardless of Ferdinand's promise to be a very, very good king, a civil war broke out in Castile over the secession of the throne in 1475. Now, ultimately, Ferdinand and Isabella are victorious over Joanna and Alfonso V, king of Portugal. It's called the War of Castilian Secession. I talked about it quite a bit in the episode Canary Wars, I think mainly from the perspective of the Portuguese. And just FYI, if you have not checked out that episode, it's really good. At any rate, the four-year conflict was very destabilizing. And even though Ferdinand and Isabella emerged victorious, they were looking for more allies after the war. To quote Henry Kamen, they, quote, accepted an alliance with social forces that prepared the way for the elimination of a plural open society, unquote. So anger and hatred against Muslims and Jews was growing in Spain. And two teenagers decide to use that anger and hatred as a tool of unification. Okay. Now, the fact that Spain was more Jewish and more Muslim than anywhere else in Europe, and had been for centuries, and so as a result, many Many people in Spain had Jewish or Muslim ancestors. Was irrelevant. God damn it, Spain was a Catholic country, am I right? Or at least the 15th century hot-headed old Christian might ask in Madrid in 1477, like one such hothead, the Dominican friar Alonso de Ojeda. Now, this is not the same Alonso Odejeda who went on a murder spree in, the, spree in the Caribbean for years and whom we have talked about earlier in the series quite a bit. But I bet, I just bet they're related. At any rate, that Alonso de Ojeda would have been 11 years old in 1477. So he certainly wasn't the friar preaching in that year in Seville. And who told Ferdinand and Isabella how dangerous the situation in Spain really was. Ojeda complained that Judaizing conversos were practicing Mosaic law and the ecclesiastical authorities were doing nothing. His main argument was basically that the so-called new Christians occupied the same posts and social positions as Jews. They think they're better than me, he said. Which really makes sense if you think about it. If some soldiers showed up and forced you to convert your religion tomorrow, wouldn't you still have the same job? I don't know, probably. I, I don't know why he thinks that the fact that they had converted... Yeah, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, after this meeting with Ojeda, Ferdinand and Isabella 
asked Pope Sixtus IV for a bull that would allow them to name bishops or priests to fulfill the inquisitorial office in the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon. Now, the Pope's response is actually somewhat shocking, a lot of historians think, because he agreed to let Ferdinand create an institution. And in later years, the papacy kind of came to regret the rights it had granted the Spanish monarchy. But at the time, Ferdinand was basically lending the Pope an army in Sicily, and so Sixtus probably just didn't want to jeopardize the fact that he had access to a Spanish army. The Pope responded to Ferdinand's requests on November 1st, 1478, with a bull that stated he gave permission to Ferdinand and Isabella to name two or three inquisitors who were to have the qualifications of being over 40 years of age, of respectable customs, and with theological or law degrees. The monarch's privilege of naming inquisitors was granted in perpetuity. Now, the first inquisitors were named on September 27, 1480, they were Miguel de Murillo and Juan de San Martin, and were, they were invested with inquisitorial powers, first in the city of Medina del Campo. Ferdinand and Isabella appointed them in a letter addressed to the Council of Seville, entitled, quote, Letter of Commission to Carry Out Inquiries into Bad Christians, unquote. Uh, excuse me, that's just the title. I, the quote, I guess, continues. Uh, Be advised. We have taken note that in our kingdoms and domains there have been and are certain bad Christians, apostates, heretics, and conversos, who, despite receiving the sacrament of baptism and being baptized and having the name of Christians, have turned and converted, and continue to turn and convert to the sect, superstition, and faithlessness of the Jews. Therefore, we can command you that, whenever you are requested by those inquisitors, you shall place your men and relatives at their disposal, and you shall let them have your jails in which to keep their prisoners, and should they wish to have a separate jail, you shall agree to that, and you shall give them chains and stocks and all other equipment that may be necessary for the keeping of said prisoners." and you shall adhere to and carry out any sentence, censure, and penalty they give, and you shall denounce the infidels and their supporters and those who help conceal, no matter what their estate, position, or status. And you shall do this under penalty of the confiscation of the property and the loss of your position, signed I the king, I the queen." Unquote. Murillo and San Martin arrived in Seville and published the Edict of Grace on December 1st. All who appeared within 30 days and confessed were pardoned and their goods were untouched. But at this very first inquisition, despite the inquisitor saying, come and denounce yourself, we promise not to steal your things, most of the conversos in the city decided to start fleeing instead. Ferd Ferdinand and Isabella ended up ordering all inhabitants in the Sevillian archdiocese to remain in their houses, and suspects were arrested. Now, although I said the Inquisition has great records, it generally does, we don't have trial records for the earliest Inquisition. In fact, the first 20 years or so of the Inquisition contain a lot of gaps in the evidence. We don't know all of the Inquisitors' names, where they worked, 
the specific hierarchy of, or, or how the specific hierarchy, I should say, of the Inquisition came into being. But I can tell you that the first auto de fe occurred in Seville on September 6, 1481. Six people were burned at the stake in front of a crowd of civilian residents, nobles, commoners, and clergy alike. Now, it was soon clear to the Inquisition that they would need to operate in tribunals established in cities rather than simply marching around from the countryside from place to place as they were. Now, at, originally there were a lot of tribunals. Later, they, these are merged into fewer, a fewer number of tribunals as the work of burning heretics and stealing their items began to slow down. Tribunals spread most quickly through Castile, uh, which had been kind of the center of, of some of the growing anti-Semitism in, in Spain. Seven inquisitors, seven additional inquisitors after the original two, all of these are Dominican friars, by the way, at first, all of them were appointed on February 11th, 1482, and one of them is Tomas de Torquemada, who is soon to be in charge of the whole operation. Now, in 1492, Castile had tribunals at Avila, Cordoba, Avila, excuse me, Jane, I don't have any idea if I'm pronouncing these correctly, Medina del Campo, Segovia, Siguenza, Toledo, and Valladolid. Valladolid. 1495, by 1495, there were 16 tribunals throughout Spain. And in the early years, they were simply set up kind of wherever the conditions permitted and the political will existed. After a flurry of early trials, these tribunals became uneconomical and were merged together, though. In, in 1507, um, the number of tribunals was reduced from 16 to 7. But the Inquisition did continue to grow after this uh, because even though it, you know, it shrank in proper, I guess, in, in, on, the, on the Iberian Peninsula, I guess I should say, excuse me, in 1505, a new tribunal, for example, is formed at Las Palmas uh, on the Canary Islands. Now, so as a rule of thumb, the Inquisition expanded very quickly in Castile and more slowly in Aragon, because the medieval Inquisition had existed in Castile, but not in Aragon. And so there was a lot more resistance when the Inquisition was formed in Aragon than in Castile. And there was, for that matter, Aragon had all of the colonies, these colonies in Italy, and there was even more resistance there. I mean, it barely functioned in Sicily and Sardinia, both of which um, Ferdinand ruled as Aragonese possessions. Now... Spanish America, also technically Aragonese, not Castilian in these early years, um, was Aragonese. And, and the Inquisition, I should say, does not reach the Americas for almost a century, in fact. In 1568 is when uh, it arrives in Mexico City, to be precise. In Lima, 1570, and Cartagena de Indias, uh, 1609. But, okay, anyway. The auto de fe's um, were likewise... Were relatively rare occurrences, and that made them, that kind of probably helped contribute to their popularity, uh, to be honest. 
Um, because when they did happen, you know, wow, it's an auto de fe. Over time, as the Inquisition expanded, they grew in pomp and circumstance. The first auto de fe in Toledo, for example, uh, there were 700 Judaizers who were reconciled in a single, single Sunday morning and afternoon. Everything was over by 2 p.m. By the mid-16th century, in contrast, the autos had transformed into just all-day-long ceremonies. I mean, at least 12 hours long. They were always held on feast days. And, you know, that's what you know helps make them more expensive, obviously, as they grew. Uh, the earliest inquisitors, like I said, were all Dominicans, uh, which is, like I said, also the same sect that stoked these flames of anti-Semitism during the 14th century. Remember, it was a, a Dominican friar who started the, the, the riot. Um, and anyway, they, the Dominican preaching was what led to the creation of all these conversos and the mass conversions, um, which then... Later, these same Dominicans are also so paranoid about all these conversos and preaching about how everyone needs to be worried about them. The conversos, the conversos that, uh, you know, my predecessors converted. As the Inquisition became entrenched in Spain, the institution, though, was eventually dominated um, by trained canon lawyers. Like, each team of Inquisitors consisted of two, and the two Inquisitors might be a theologian and a canon law jurist or two canon law jurists. Um, I don't want to get too caught up in the background in the weeds, but, you know, for example, Henry came and analyzed the backgrounds of 57 inquisitors in the tribunal of Toledo. All but two of those inquisitors had law degrees. Uh, and specifically, nearly half of those who had law degrees had specifically been trained at the prestigious Colegios Mayores the most exclusive law school in Spain. And in fact, most inquisitors seemed to see the Inquisition as a stepping stone. Most of them went on to serve the highest courts of Spain. Um, for elite old Christians, the Inquisition was uh, yeah, it's a great job. <laughs> Each team of inquisitors works under the direction of the Inquisitor General, the first was Tomas de Torquemada, who was appointed on October 17th, 1483. Like I said, we don't know why he was chosen or, or exactly how all this, how all that happened. But it's funny, though, because Tomas de Torquemada, if you want to just talk about how hypocritical all of this stuff is a little bit, he, like Ferdinand, Torquemada was a distant descendant of Conversos himself. Uh, but at any rate... Torquemada was the person more than any other who is, I guess, responsible for some of why the Inquisition was such an insidious institution. I mean, Torquemada didn't just run the Inquisition as the first Inquisitor General. He was the one who set up the rules, like the Edict of Grace. Torquemada instructed his Inquisitors that while those who came forward would be left alone, quote, so that they may, so that they lose none of their goods... However, they must present their confessions in writing, and they shall be asked about the circumstances surrounding the content of their confession. Especially, they shall be asked about the prayers they said, and where, and with whom they gathered." Unquote. The extensive written records gathered during these Edicts of Grace were designed 
to help create evidence for future prosecutions. I mean, Torquemada is a real slimeball. His instructions also included, quote, Inquisitors can repeat the question of torture. Repeat the question of torture in a case where they must and can do so, unquote. Torquemada told his inquisitors not to worry too much about the orphans they created. Instead, orphans were an opportunity to create, quote, good Christians, especially the orphaned girls who could marry or enter a religious order, unquote. One of Torquemada's first points of business, other than setting up these rules, were to firmly establish the Inquisition within Aragon, regardless of the local hostilities there. And those hostilities, for the record, didn't just come from the conversos in Aragon, who were relatively few in comparison to those in Castile, because there were, no mass, there were not as many mass conversions. But conversos and other, quote, leaders and gentry claimed that the procedure was against the liberties of the realm because their goods were confiscated and they were not given the names of witnesses, unquote. Traditionally, in Aragon, the names of witnesses were never withheld. Ferdinand responded to the resistance of his subjects by claiming, quote, There should not be such dread of the Inquisition if there are so few heretics. Unquote. Now, whether through personal dread or constitutional opposition, Resistance to the Inquisition continued in Aragon after that. Uh, a lot of people there saw the Inquisition as an imposition of Castilian law on their sovereignty. Now, Ferdinand's response to this resistance was very severe. Well, it could have been worse, but it was very severe. When the Inquisition arrived at the city of Teruel, the clergy asked for and obtained papal letters releasing the city from inquisitorial censures. They wrote to the king as well to protest, quote, they were coming to set up an inquisition that will repeat the excesses committed in ex in, of those in Castile, unquote. The king responded to that letter by raising arms to help his inquisitors. He massed those troops at the walls of Teruel and, quote, faced with such massive coercion, the city was easily reduced into obedience, unquote. Ferdinand then stated of the incident that no cause nor interest, however great, will make us suspend the Inquisition. Now, the cause or interest he wrote about were the city councillors of Barcelona, who were begging Ferdinand at the time to reconsider the Inquisition due to the mass number of converso emigrants who were leaving Barcelona in fear. As a result, they argued, quote, foreign realms are growing rich and glorious through the depopulation of the country. The few remaining merchants have ceased to trade, unquote. In May of 1486, they again warned him that the city would be soon, quote, totally depopulated and ruined if the Inquisition were introduced. But all of this protest was in vain. The Inquisition was implanted throughout Aragon, largely by 1487. Now, the victims were fewer here, in part due to that emigration, I'm sure, and in part because there were just simply fewer conversos in Aragon. Now, at any rate, Aragon is, was comprised basically of two joint kingdoms, Valencia and Catalonia, 
Um, by the time the Inquisition was established in 1488 in Catalonia, um, for example, there were only seven people burnt in Catalonia that year. Uh, and in the next year, only three. Uh, but there was never any doubt who the Inquisition was directed against. In Catalonia, the few people were executed. Uh, uh, and in fact, from 1488 to 1505, just under 1,200 people, 1,199 people were tried by the Spanish Inquisition in Catalonia during those years. All but eight of them were tried for the crime of being conversos, essentially. Many were tried in absence since they had fled. Okay, well, in Valencia, the resistance to the Inquisition was so great that the Inquisitor of Saragossa, a certain Pedro de Arbuez, was assassinated while kneeling in prayer at the chapel. While he was doing that, eight assassins crept behind him, and while he was praying, they stabbed him in the back. One of them did, in a, with a stroke that went through his neck, reportedly. Then he was stabbed several more times, and the perpetrators fled. Arbues died 24 hours later. Now, before that assassination, incidentally, a lot of the old Christian nobility in Saragossa was against the Inquisition. They didn't want anyone to mess with the taxes and rents they collected from their converso subjects, was their basic reasoning. The mood of the city, though, changed after that. The constitution was suspended. Mobs roamed the street for justice. Pedro de Arbues was canonized as a saint because miracles were reportedly performed with his blood, and in this atmosphere, the Inquisition quickly took hold. When they found one of Arbuez's murderers, they cut off his, or excuse me, not the Inquisition, when city officials uh, found one of Arbuez's murderers, his hands were cut off, nailed up to the town square, and afterwards he was dragged to the marketplace, beheaded and quartered, and the pieces of his body were suspended, hanging above various streets in the city. Another assassin was captured. He committed suicide in his cell the day before he was scheduled to be trialed. Uh, he broke a glass lamp and swallowed the fragments. He suffered the same punishment as his comrade, albeit he was dead already when he was quartered. Now, with that said, though, there isn't a lot of evidence about exactly how this assassination plot went down, who was behind it, why. Historians are pretty sure that the cost was 600 florins. Since the end result of the assassination amounted to, quote, an act of mass suicide that annihilated all opposition to the Inquisition for the next hundred years, unquote, I think it's fair to wonder if conversos were even behind it at all. Maybe they were. And I mean, it would hardly be the first time that somebody did something that turned out to be a bad decision, a stupid idea for a cause. On the other hand, I think it's fair to point out again that the Machiavellian uh, rulers of the Inquisition, Ferdinand and Torquemada, could also have easily staged the assassination in order to smooth the way for the Inquisition. I don't know. At any rate, as I've mentioned, the Inquisition was laser-focused on ferreting out Conversos, heretical conversos. See, conversos might prove themselves heretics by, say, 
not eating pork, or by not working on the Sabbath. Such was the fate of a woman who was recorded in the inquisitorial records as, quote, Isabel, wife of the bacalar Lope de Higuera, unquote. A bacalar means her husband had a university education, the equivalent of a bachelor's degree, by the way. Isabella stood trial for heresy in 1484. Inquisitorial scribes recorded her crimes thusly, quote, She lights new candles early on Friday evenings. She cooks her meals for Saturday on Friday. She does not do any sort of work on Saturday, but instead put clean undergarments and clothing and shaves and dresses up on those days. On those Saturdays, she would withdraw to pray, sometimes alone and sometimes with other women. And when she had to swear an oath, she said Hebrew words. She did everything in the style of a Jewish woman, and as the Jews do, because of these things, Rodriguez del Barco, the local inquisitor, asked that she be declared a heretic and condemned as such, unquote. Isabel was then presented with a summons to appear before the Inquisition and defend herself for these crimes. Well, Isabel promptly fled. When she did not appear within the time limit of 30 days, she was found guilty by default and, quote, incurred a sentence of greater excommunication and all the other spiritual and temporal punishments contained in the laws against heretics, as well as the loss and confiscation of her goods, unquote. In addition, she was relaxed to the virtuous royal magistrate. Isabel was burned in effigy, she had fled, and instructions were given to any other judges of other cities, villages, and places within the kingdoms of Spain and outside of them, that whenever the aforesaid Isabel might be found, quote, they may do with her what they can and should do by law, unquote. Marina Gonzalez was a woman who was not as lucky as Isabel to apparently escape. Marina confessed during an Edict of Grace in 1484, and those confessions were preserved in the inquisitorial record. She was not punished on that occasion, but ten years later, in 1494, Marina was tried again for heresy by the Inquisition. Since records existed of her confession from the decade prior, she was arrested for being an apostate heretic on January in January. Then the inquisitor in charge, Diego Martinez Ortega, he was in charge of the accusation that Marina had returned to the heresy she had once been convicted of, quote, in his words, like a dog to its vomit, unquote. Ortega accused Marina of resting on Saturday, saying, quote, she ritually purged the meat she had to eat in order to observe Jewish ceremony. Likewise, she did not eat pork. What proves her heresy even more is that she had no picture or figure of any male or female saint in her house, nor the sign of the cross, unquote. The trial of Marina went on for months, and on June 9th, Six months after being arrested, the inquisitorial record records state that Marina Gonzalez began to starve herself in an attempt to kill herself. I would guess out of depression, who knows, the fact that she stopped eating was added to the evidence of crimes proving her as a heretic. 
The Inquisition argued Marina, quote, tried to kill herself in prison to avoid confessing her errors, unquote. On June 30th, 1494, Marina was convicted at an auto de fe of being a relapsed heretic and apostate. Quote, she's incurred a sentence of major excommunication and the confiscation and loss of all her possessions. We must relax her to justice and to the secular arm. The Inquisition often targeted converso women. The uh, Mar- Maria Gonzalez, who, uh, completely unrelated to Marina Gonzalez, Maria Gonzalez was another converso who was prosecuted by the Inquisition on multiple occasions. Maria was first arrested in 1511 after she was denounced as a Judaizer. She confessed and made allegations against dozens of other conversos while she was interrogated. She was sentenced to prison in 1512, and she sat there for a year and a half. At that point, in 1513, inquisitorial prosecutors set out to try Maria again, this time for perjury, since lying under oath was an act of heresy. She was sentenced to torture during the second trial because the Inquisition believed, quote, she spoke against people who, with whom she did not commit crimes and because of other reasons that move us to ascertain the truth, as we are obligated to do for God in our consciousness, unquote. So, on July 19, 1513, quote, Their reverences went to the torture room and admonished Maria Gonzalez to tell the truth. For it was imperative for their reverences to know the entire truth, and they assured her that if she should receive death, a wound, or the loss of some limb during the torture, it would be her own fault, unquote. Maria was stripped, put on the rack, and tied with cords after being tied up, quote, She said that she made it all up. She made it all up because she detested them, unquote. Presumably them, being the people she may or may not have falsely accused. Regardless of that confession, quote, Their reverences ordered a jar of water poured into her nose and mouth, which was started. As the jar of water was emptied, she said everything she said in her confessions before. As they put her into... They can put her into a fire, and still everything she said is true. Their reverences ordered the water torture continued. As she was given the water, she said she had told the truth. The order was given to pour another jar of water, As this happened, Maria is recorded in the Inquisition as stating, I speak the truth, I have spoken the truth, I have already spoken the truth, I speak the truth. What I have said is true, as I am telling the truth. I do not tell any lies. I have not lied. I have spoken the truth. I have spoken the truth. Unquote. Those were the answers to the various times they asked her questions as they poured the first jar, or excuse me, the first two jars of water, which they finished pouring them down into her throat. Shortly thereafter, quote, the second water, jar of water was finished, quote, their reverences ordered the water continued, unquote. Before the trial ended, Maria Gonzalez, in fact, quote, begged 
their reverences, that they let her go raise her children who walked astray. She asked for mercy, begging their reverences to spare her life so that she might go and raise her children, unquote. That was on September 1513. Afterwards, her sentence was read aloud in a loud, intelligible voice. Quote, Maria Gonzalez must be relaxed to justice and the secular arm for having falsely confessed and being impenitent, unquote. Proponents of the Inquisition began to view their converso suspects as being contaminated by the remaining Jews in Spain as time went on after 1480. And in fact, although the Inquisition began, anti-Semitism just continued to rise in Spain after the foundation of the Inquisition. Edicts of expulsion began to be passed into law. Jews were first expelled from the city of Jerez de Frontera in 1482. The next year, they were expelled from Seville, Cordoba, and Cadiz. In 1486, they were expelled from Zaragoza, Albaracín, and Teruel. The Inquisition and its supporters then continued to successfully lobby the crown from there until 1492. And in that year... Two months after the conquest of Granada and six months before Columbus reached the New World, Ferdinand and Isabella signed an edict of expulsion that covered both Castile and Aragon. Twelve years after the founding of the Inquisition, all Jews in Spain were required to accept conversion to Christianity, to become conversos and become baptized, or, and, you know, thus being subject to the Inquisition, or... They were to leave the country. Now, Ferdinand signed the Edict of Expulsion despite the fact that he had two Jewish friends. Hey, I got my two Jewish friends here. One was Rabbi Isaac Abernell, the chief treasurer of the royal police force. And the other was Rabbi Abraham Senor, who was the chief royal treasurer. Now, both of these men visited with Ferdinand multiple times. They begged him to reconsider, but their king refused. Instead, he signed the decree of expulsion, which stated that Jews could convert or leave, and if they refused this offer, quote, then they shall incur the penalty of death and the confiscation of all their property for the benefit of our chamber and treasury, and they shall incur this penalty by the mere fact without any trial, sentence, or declaration. Also, anyone in these kingdoms of any estate, condition, or dignity whatsoever daring to receive take in, shelter, or defend any Jew or Jewess, either publicly or secretly in their houses or in other places, also incurs the penalty of the loss of all their property, vassals, castles, and other inheritances, unquote. Jews had until the end of July to dispose of their goods and property. The edict was signed March 31st. It's almost funny to me that Ferdinand did sometimes protect his friends. I mean, so, you know, he probably didn't even think he was racist, you know. For example, on May 30th, 1497, Ferdinand issued a decree that exempted Louis de Santangel, his family, and his future successors from the Inquisition because Santangel was a wealthy converso who was a key figure in providing Columbus to uh, 
excuse me, in providing funding for Columbus and the other Spanish ventures into the Americas that Ferdinand was so fond of. And, I mean, so lest you get the impression that Ferdinand was, I mean, anything other than a rotten sociopath, though. I mean, he signed the decree protecting the Santangelo family only after one member of the family had already been burnt at the stake. And, you know, in fact, you know, like I said, a lot of the accused in Aragon were some of the wealthiest names in the nation. The last names Santa Fe, Santangel, Calabria, and Sanchez uh, were all noble families with conversive blood and who repeatedly show up in inquisitorial records. Francisco de Santa Fe, the son of a famous converso and a city councillor, committed suicide by jumping from the tower in which he was imprisoned. His remains were burnt in the auto de fe of December 15th, 1486. Now, these families were actually, all the families I named, were all fervent supporters of Ferdinand, at least before the Inquisition started. Louis Santangel, like I said, um, you know, he had been, was a big financer. He was personally knighted by Ferdinand's father, King Juan II, for his military prowess. That didn't stop the Inquisition uh, from beheading one of Louis's cousins and having them burnt in the marketplace of Saragossa on August 8th, 1487. Now, Louis Santangel, who loaned money to Columbus, like I said, and made possible the discovery of the New World, was actually sentenced to do penance in July 1491, which was regardless of Ferdinand's Edict of Protection. Fifteen members in all of the Santangel family were punished by the Inquisition before 1499. Another family, the Sanchezes, were another popular target of the Inquisition between 1486 and 1503, Fourteen members from the Sanchez noble family were punished by the Inquisition. Now, so, like, regardless of whether uh, or not what I said earlier, that Ferdinand might be, say, behind the assassination of his own Inquisitor, I think it's pretty obvious that what he was doing was using the Inquisition for uh, what people today would call realpolitik. Uh, Both the installation of the Inquisition and the Edict of Expulsion seemed like they were part of an attempt to gain political control over Castile and Aragon after the chaos of the civil wars and attempt to create an institution that had the legal ability to fuse Aragon and Castile into one. Now, Ferdinand and Isabella's reasoning with the Edict of Expulsion didn't really work out, though, how they planned. The monarchs thought that the Edict of Expulsion would just result in almost every Jew in Spain converting to Christianity. Um, But the reality is that the Edict... I mean, there was a mass conversions, but there was also mass emigration. Ferdinand himself admitted that the Edict hurt his finances. Upwards of half of the Jews in Spain are thought to have converted to Christianity. The rest left. Of course, the results of the expulsion was devastating not just to Ferdinand's pocketbook, but to all of the Spanish economy. And, well, beyond that, it was especially devastating to the people who chose to leave. One anonymous observer wrote an account of the expulsion three years later in Hebrew. I have a translated copy of the letter, thanks to John Cowens, who is the trans- 
the editor of Early Modern Spain, a documentary history, and I think the translator of this, uh, of that document, I'm not sure. Uh, regardless. Now, according to the author of the account, between 50,000 and 53,000 families were exiled as a result of the edict. Perhaps 120,000 of those people were ex of these exiled Jews went to Portugal, by about a quarter of the total population of exiles. Each paid, quote, the fourth part of all the merchandise they had carried hither to the king of Portugal for the right to settle in his nation. King Manuel, though, proved himself to be as villainous as Ferdinand. The king acted much worse toward them than the king of Spain, and after six months he banished 700 children to a remote island to settle it, and all of them died. Some say they would double that many. Unquote. That island is Sao Tome, off the coast of Africa. Manuel desired to marry Ferdinand and Isabella's daughter, and so to gain currency with these Spanish monarchs, he took the additional step in 1497 of ordering his own expulsion of the Jews from Portugal. Now, this actually didn't end up happening, both the expulsion and the considered marriage, but a lot of people were forcibly converted, and thousands of children were forcibly taken from their parents. Excuse me, I had to sneeze there. Two years later, Manuel changed tacks again when he realized all this, all of his stuff was bad. Everything he was doing was backfiring. This, this expulsion and all of this nonsense. I mean, after all, he had a real plan. The, the, the secret Portuguese plan. Getting rich. And so, many Jews and converted Jews who were fleeing Portugal, uh, so many Jews, in fact, were fleeing Portugal and that in 1499, the king prohibited new Christians from leaving the country of Portugal. And instead, he asked the Pope for his own inquisition. Now, the Pope did not agree to a Portuguese inquisition until after Manuel was dead in 1536, and the first auto de fe happened in Portugal in 1540. Now, that's a little bit uh, beyond the scope of uh, this episode, but a suffice it to say, a smaller-sized inquisition is also going on in Spain, in Portugal, excuse me, for a long time, just like in, in Spain, excuse me. Now, others, besides going to Portugal, and they didn't have much luck there, a lot of the Jews who refused to convert, these are the people who call, become the Sephardim, um, a lot of them fled to Muslim controlled lands. The anonymous account of the expulsion tells us, quote, many of the exiled Spaniards went to Mohammedan countries, Tfez, Tlemcen, and the Berber provinces under the king of Tunis. Most of the Muslims did not allow them to enter their cities, and many of them died in the fields from hunger, thirst, and lack of everything. The lions and bears, which are numerous in this country, killed some of them while they lay starving outside of the cities, unquote. That sounds fucking horrible. Though this wasn't the fate of all the Jews who fled to Africa, the author also notes that while in general North Africa was difficult to say the least for a lot of people, the viceroy of the kingdom of Tlemcen, if I'm saying that right, was uh, Jewish and, quote, spent a large amount of money to help them, unquote. Likewise, the Jews of northern Africa were very charitable towards them, our author tells us. 
But uh, a lot of people, despite that, were not so lucky. And similarly to Portugal, how a lot of people left and then ultimately returned after the Portuguese expulsion and said, well, if I'm going to have to convert, I might as well just go back to Spain. After unfruitfully begging in North Africa, um, a lot of Jews returned to Spain and became converts to Christianity. Now, other Spanish refugees went to Italy and received, likewise, a range of treatment. When the, quote, edict of expulsion became known in the other countries, vessels came from Genoa to carry away the Jews. The crews of these vessels acted maliciously and meanly toward the Jews, robbed them, and delivered some of them to the famous pirate of that time, who was called the Corsair of Genoa. To those who escaped and arrived at Genoa, the people of the city showed themselves mercilessly and oppressed and robbed them, and the cruelty of their wicked hearts went so far that they took the infants from their mother's breasts. Those who went to Naples got a different experience. The king of this country was friendly to the Jews, received them all, and was merciful toward them, and he helped them with money. Now, despite this kindness, though, plague and famine then also broke out in Italy, including Naples, very suddenly. Quote, a very many of them died, so that the living wearied of burying the dead, unquote. Quite a few went to the Ottoman Empire. Quote, some of these were thrown into the sea and drowned, but those who arrived there, the king of Turkey received kindly as they were artisans. He lent them money to settle many of them on an island and gave them fields and estates, unquote. Now, only about half, like I've said, of the Jewish population of Spain departed. The rest were converted and thus subject to the Inquisition. As the institution spread through Spain in the late 15th century, thousands of conversos came forward to admit their offenses to the Inquisition to be reconciled. When the Inquisition reached Seville, the prisons overflowed with conversos waiting to be interrogated as part of their voluntary confessions. And Mallorca, the first auto de fe, included a 300-person procession of repentant conversos wearing sanbenitos. An additional response one might have to the Inquisition, besides leaving Spain or converting, was to flee within the nation, never leaving, but to attempt to wander from province to province. And some conversos did this, always trying to stay one step of the Inquisition ahead. One converso resident of Cuenca explained why someone might do that. The, the fear and humiliation that the Inquisition brought, quote, I would rather see all the Muslims of Granada enter this city than the holy office of the Inquisition, which takes away life and honor, unquote. Now, fear of the Inquisition was very real for conversos during this period. Upwards of three quarters 75% of those who died at the hands of the Inquisition did so during the first 50 years of the existence of the tribunal. From 1481 to 1524, 1,000 heretics were sent to, stake, to, sent to the stake in the city of Seville. In Castile, the incidence of executions, in fact, was almost certainly higher than Aragon, but 
like I said, we don't have complete records for the early years, so in part, that number is an estimation. It's, it's not an absolute fact. Um, and, and I should point out that Henry Kamen, who I think is one of the best historians of the Inquisition, he argues that the death toll for, for all of Spain in tribunals up to the year 1530 was probably only about 2,000 people, which is a lot fewer than most other historians estimated. I'm not an expert enough to say. But whatever the total was, Cayman also says that if there is a lesser, you know, the death toll is only 2,000, that doesn't really lessen the impact of the Inquisition because the Inquisition was still a reign of terror that had devastating consequences for the Spanish minorities it persecuted. For example, um, in certain places like Valencia, where there, there's a lot of conversos, the rate of execution before 1530 might have been as high as 40% of all accused. Well, at any rate. Now, besides the legal reasons that conservos, conservos, um, conversos, good grief, good grief, excuse me, besides the legal reasons for conversos to fear the Inquisition, fraud and extortion were also rampant. If we are to judge by the example, at least, of one Inquisitor, Diego Rodriguez Lucero. Lucero was appointed as the Inquisitor of Cordoba in 1499. Within a short period of time, he began arresting leading citizens on some pretty trifling and false pretexts so that he could basically steal their property. This was par for the core, uh, excuse me, par for the course, um, but what made Lucero more bold, you might say, than other inquisitors, it seems, was that his greed was so great that he even began arresting old Christian families and accusing them of being conversos. Later witnesses testified that Lucero even sometimes forced conversos to teach Jewish prayers to his old Christian prisoners so that afterwards he could accuse those old Christians of Judaizing. In 1500, Lucero relaxed 130 people to the secular arm and they were to be executed. 1504, he burnt another 120 people in one auto de fe, 1505 in May, 27 more people were burnt. Reportedly, some of those who were burnt in May of 1505 were executed to prevent them from complaining to the new King Philip about Lucero. Now, finally, in 1506, independent inquiries were made into Lucero's activities as Inquisitor. Now, since the Inquisitor General had basically been ignoring the petitions against Lucero. Now, uh, that investigation discovered that Lucero was found to have 400 prisoners in his cells, and finally, as a result of that, Lucero was stopped by King Philip. As a result of the independent investigation, which was just in time to suspend the Inquisitor's planned mass execution of 160 more prisoners at the next auto defect, now, just so you know, Lucero was not found guilty of any crimes himself as a result of this investigation. In fact, he wasn't even fired. 
he went ahead and continued prosecuting people in order to steal from them. He was merely stopped from executing the 160 prisoners that he was going to you know, execute that time. His career continued, and he started to focus his attention on the 80-year-old Archbishop of Granada, a Geronimite monk named Hernando de Talavera, who lived in a palace, and Lucero thought, hey, you know, I would really like to have that palace. So Lucero accused Talavera of having a synagogue in his palace. Lucero arrested the archbishop and his household, which included his sister, two nieces and their daughters, and their servants. Both the servants that were arrested were both tortured until they... Um, Surprise, surprise, they were tortured. Eventually, they denounced Talavera. Now, eventually the papacy intervened. I mean, this was an archbishop after all. And he was acquitted in April of 1507. But by that point, just a month later, Talavera died of a fever. He got sick the day after walking barefoot in penitence through Granada in the auto de fe. It wasn't until June 1507 when the new Inquisitor General, Francisco Jimenez Cisneros, took over, then when was, uh, that's not until then, was Lucero eventually removed from power. He was in fact arrested in 1508, finally, and his victims in prison in Cordoba, still there, were released. But after that arrest, he, with that said, he received no further punishments for his crimes. Rodrigo uh, excuse me, D Diego Rodriguez Lucero then retired to Seville and died peacefully. Both the Crown and the Inquisition made a tidy profit conducting these inquisitorial trials. And since making money was part of the motivation for the Inquisition, a lot of people were prosecuted on very flimsy evidence, not just by Lucero. Sancho de Ciudad was a leading citizen of the city of Ciudad Real, and he was accused of practicing Judaism based on the hearsay of a neighbor. Oh, that neighbor testified they, they remembered Mr. Sancho de Ciudad practicing Judaism 30 years ago. Juan de Chinchilla was a tailor in Ciudad Real who admitted to Jewish practices in 1483 after the Edict of Grace expired. That was a mistake. He was burnt at the stake on the word of witnesses who claimed to see him engage in Jewish practices on two occasions, one 16 years ago, the other 20 years before the trial. Another person was prosecuted on the words of an elderly woman who recalled something to the Inquisition that happened, quote, 50 years ago, unquote. In fact, in most inquisitorial cases, it seems that the prosecution relied on either, quote, unquote, voluntary confessions, unquote, that were extracted from torture, or from fragments of hearsay evidence that might have occurred years, sometimes, obviously, like I've been getting at decades before. Now, Maria Gonzalez, who was brought before inquisitors at Ciudad Real in 1511, um, the only evidence against her had been her own confession during an Edict of Grace in 1483. Her husband had been burnt as a heretic in that same year, 1483, that is, and ever since, Maria Gonzalez had maintained that they burnt him on false witness, and he went to heaven like a martyr. 
On the evidence of her espousing those beliefs that her husband was in heaven, she was sent to the stake and burnt in 1511. Now, like I said, often it wasn't the Inquisitors themselves though, who committed the worst offenses against the accused. It was their familiars and other agents. One Inquisitor in Cordoba employed a man named Bravo, who got the job as being a familiar in Cordoba after previously being the familiar of the previously mentioned Rodrigo I mean, excuse me, I don't know what I call him, Rodrigo, I can't read. Diego Rodriguez Lucero. Now, in Cordoba, Bravo threw so many wealthy prisoners in jail that it's pretty clear that he purposefully targeted those people with property so that he could steal from them. And that's almost definitely something he learned from Lucero. The relatives of his prisoners petitioned the crown that Bravo, quote, carried out many irregularities in the procedure of imprisonment and trial, and maltreated not only said prisoners, but their wives and children and property, unquote. But Bravo never appears to have been investigated, despite pleas for justice. His career as a professional thief likely went unchecked. Now, the general lack of oversight that it was just surrounding the Inquisition also helped out the career of a certain Diego de, Diego de Algeciras, if I, I think I pronounced that correctly. Algeciras was basically a professional witness who, quote, for a reasonable pittance, was ready to perjure himself, unquote. Sounds nice. Thanks to Algeciras' assistance, the Inquisition at the city of Gene was able to put almost every single one of the wealthiest conversos of the city in jail. One of those citizens was arrested after her daughter, a 15-year-old girl, was locked in a room, stripped, and whipped with the, no with the notary writing all of this down until she agreed to testify against her mother. In Toledo, in 1487, it was reported that the official in charge of receiving confiscated goods for the Inquisition, Juan de Uria, had up to that point, September 26th, 1487, defrauded 1.5 million Maravedis from the citizens of Toledo. Now, I don't know the exchange rate in today's currency, but 1.5 million Maravedis, I'm guessing, was a whole shitload of money. Now, at any rate, had it not been for the events of 1492, I think it's very possible that the Inquisition would have run out of converso victims. But the expulsion changed all of that, since all the people who remained had to convert and were now subject to the inquisitorial judgment. Excuse me, got the hiccups. And that number of people, the new conversos after 1492, was tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, I, I'm not 100% sure, but forcibly converting thousands of Jews certainly is one way to create converts, but not many of these new converts were very good, pious, non-heretical Christians. One Spaniard wrote of the experience, quote, uh, that is being, uh, his experience being forcibly converted, quote, if, I were, if it were not for the debts owed to me, I would not convert. This is real captivity. Another commented, When we were Jews, we were lords. Now we are slaves. 
I think it's fair to point out that the Inquisition was never fully accepted in Spain. And I don't just mean by these conversos here, who obviously had issues with them being the primary targets of the Inquisition. But there were old Christian opponents as well, who were not convinced the Inquisition was a good idea. San Benitos were especially unpopular. It wasn't just that the condemned had to wear them. But afterwards, the San Benitos were nailed to the rafters of the Church of the Diocese, in which the condemned was a member. Many Spaniards believed this wasn't just distasteful, but it was oppressive, and further, it brought public shame upon the entire community. With that said, it's unquestionable that during the most bloody period of the Inquisition, very few old Christians bothered, quote, to bestir themselves, to raise their voices in protest, unquote as thousands of their Christian brothers and sisters were executed, driven into financial ruin, or exiled in an unprecedented campaign of violence in Spanish history. Reforms were proposed after Ferdinand died in January, 15, in January 1516, the crown passed to Charles's grandson. It was argued that at the very least the veil of secrecy regarding witnesses ought to be changed. <clears throat> but the uh, Francisco Cisneros, who was the Inquisitor General, was just fine and dandy with how things were going. Cisneros wrote to his new king, quote, There will never be any need for reform, and it would be sinful to introduce changes. Now, Cisneros dies not long after Charles becomes king, but his successor, uh, Charles chooses Cardinal Adrian of Utrecht, was Charles' old tutor, and he was likewise completely against any form of any kind of reform. Whatever hopes of the opponents of the Inquisition might have had for any changes after Ferdinand's death, it was clear that the monarchy wanted the institution around. Remember, Spain was still a nation in the process of being created. After Isabella died, Ferdinand was theoretically only again, once again, just the king of Aragon, not Aragon and Castile. The Inquisition was the only state institution that had power in both kingdoms, and now when Ferdinand dies and Charles takes the throne, well, he had absolutely no more desire to get rid of it than his grandfather had. The Inquisition was Charles' key to the Spanish Empire. Now, like I said, not everybody, though, was a fan of the creation of this Spanish Empire. A lot of people wanted to remain Castile and Aragon from 1519 to 1521. In fact, this issue caused the peninsula to be racked by a series of violent events known as the Revolt of the Comuneros. Basically, some of the nobility and many town oligarchies allied together in what it was is a pretty confusing and complex struggle. They waged war against the crown. They waged war against other Spanish factions. Sometimes communeros waged war against other groups of communeros. I mean, the communeros weren't exactly a unified movement. But at any rate, some communeros were conversos, and so, yep. You guessed it. By the end of the revolt, the Crown and the Inquisition were blaming conversos for the entire revolt. 
the constable of Castile, for instance, claimed that after a battle, he inspected the dead and found, quote, many dead were without foreskins, unquote. How'd you like that job? Well, the reality is that the revolt of the Comuneros was not a converso plot really in the slightest. In fact, many conversos actually were fighting on the royalist side. The revolt of the Comuneros was essentially fought over the succession after Ferdinand and Isabella were both dead. Their monarchs, their direct heir, Ferdinand and Isabella, was Juana la Loca, Juana the Mad, who was widely thought of incapable of ruling Spain. In addition, she was a woman. And so the plan that her son, Charles, was going to inherit the throne um, was the plan. But he wasn't Spanish. Charles was born in what is now Belgium and did not speak Castilian. So you, ima you can imagine how popular that was in Castile and Aragon. When Charles arrived in Spain, he, in addition, brought with him an entourage of foreigners who just basically sapped the treasury, enriching themselves. And combined with this, all of this combined with the fact that Charles immediately started getting into fights with the courts, the courts, basically Spanish parliament, well, you can see how a widespread rebellion occurred. In 1520, the rebels, known as Comuneros, these are primarily townspeople, but there are also clergy, nobility, commoners included, um, began to revolt. And this wasn't a coordinated movement, but it was widespread in various cities, and the rebels did reflect some common demands. Thanks to John Cowens, the editor and translator of my copy of Early Modern Spain, a documentary history, I can share those demands with you. First was the issue of secession. Quote, after Charles, no women can secede to the throne, unquote. And in addition, all future kings after Charles must be born in Castile. The communeros wanted a say on the royal council as well. They wanted each bishopric in the kingdom of Spain to nominate three men whom the of whom the king would choose one. And all of the governors and counselors nominated and chosen would be amongst, quote, lettered men over 40 years of age, unquote. They also wanted the courts, or basically Spanish parliament, to consist of two houses. And for each bishopric, that each bishopric would choose two members of the courts, one from amongst the lords, one from amongst the commoners, um, almost like an English-style parliament is what they wanted. The communers wanted the right to bear arms. Quote, everyone shall be allowed to carry the offensive and defensive weapons that they wish to carry, and no law shall prohibit their carrying them, unquote. In fact, far beyond the right to bear arms, the communers argued that, quote, all shall be obligated to bear arms in this manner. Each member of the lower estate shall be obligated to have a sword, a dagger, a helmet, a lance, and a shield. While those of the highest estate are obligated to have two swords and two daggers, one for oneself and one for a squire, as well as a pike, a halberd, and a shield. The communeros demanded that the courts have the right to declare war, not the king. Quote, when the king wishes to make war, he shall summon the courts and inform its members, so that they can see whether or not it is just or willful. Without their consent, the king cannot fight any war, unquote. So far from being some sort of converso plot, the revolt of the Comuneros were Spanish people who wanted a Spanish constitution, essentially. And ultimately, 
They failed in securing one. Two years later, what remained of the rebel bands surrendered to royal forces. And from the perspective of Ferdinand and Isabella, as well as their successors, the Inquisition was the tool with which they could defame and defeat the popularism of this revolt by stoking another type of popularism and blaming Judaism. The Inquisition was a tool of the Spanish crown to use against those in Spain who wished to challenge the status quo. Now, I've given you a very brief explanation of a very complicated rebellion, so let's go back to the Inquisition. Now, inquisitorial tribe trials for Judaizing, Judaizing excuse me, continued after the expulsion at a regular pace until about 1510. Now, at that point, trials began to slow down. And according to Lou and Hamza, there were substantial rumblings about reforming the jurisdiction and legal procedures involved with the Inquisition. The uh, institution survived these attacks uh, made against it by uh, the, the Spanish. And when Martin Luther began preaching, uh, the Inquisitors found plenty more justification for their office. Um, it was at this point when Protestantism becomes a thing, is when old Christians start to speak out, which is far too late with their resistance to stop the Inquisition. Luther and Charles met, actually, just so you know, in 1521. Charles, who was just a one year removed from being crowned, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, in addition to his being King of Spain, attended the Diet of Worms, a meeting which, wherein Luther spoke. He expressed his anger against the church with remarkable boldness, and Charles was furious. He issued a reply in a statement on Luther, where he ordered that, quote, he is not to preach or seduce the people with his evil doctrine, and is not to incite rebellion. I am resolved to act and proceed against him as a notorious heretic, unquote. The Inquisition was stronger than ever by the end of the revolt of the Comuneros, and with a new brand new enemy to persecute, in the spread of Lutheranismo. Strengthened and in response to Charles' repugnance, from 1521 and to 1535, the Inquisition then began searching for Lutheranismo within the people of Spain. It sure did find a lot, but incidentally, most of these people convicted for Lutheranismo just so happened to be conversos. And a lot of them just weren't charged with Judaizing. Um, but mind you, the Inquisition was often, it seems like, to be guided by racism, not religion. Um, so, for example, this isn't really true in the, in the far northern parts of Spain. It's French immigrants who are running afoul of the Inquisition most often. In the far south, in Granada, it, it often is Moriscos. And in the words of Henry Cayman, the Inquisition, quote, wasn't solely the imposition of a sinister tyranny, though, on an unwilling people, unquote. I mean, it was fully supported by a large section of the old Christian population and, quote, controlled by men whose outlook reflected the mentality of the mass of Castilians, unquote. So, now, with that said, like I said, after the 1520 Diet of Words, you might not necessarily be a minority within Spain to run afoul of the Inquisition. The king wasn't the only Spaniard in attendance. Uh, the humanist Juan de Vergara recalled that everybody, especially as the Spaniards, went to see Luther, and at the beginning everybody agreed with him. 
even those who now write against him confess that at the beginning they were in favor of him, unquote. Such was the fear that the Inquisition instilled within Spaniards. Juan Luis Viviz was a Spanish scholar of the 16th century. He wrote to his friend, the philosopher Desiderius Erasmus, in 1534, quote, We live in such difficult times that is, it is dangerous either to speak or be silent, unquote. Now, regardless of the fact that a lot of Spanish intellectuals, and not to mention King Charles personally, heard Luther speak, though, it seems that a lot of inquisitors actually seemed pretty ignorant of what Lutheranismo actually was. Now, with that said, though, Spain was full of its own kinds of religious experimentation, and a lot of it was directed by women. And some of the various spiritual healers, preachers, and intellectuals that existed in Spain began to fall under the purview of the Inquisition as potential Lutherans. And one group that received a lot of attention from the Inquisition were called alumbrados, or illuminated ones is what that means. Now these are people who rejected priestly intermediaries between God and human beings, and in 1524, several key leaders in the movement were arrested, and incidentally, a lot of alumbrados were also conversos. Henry Kamen says of the growth of the movement, it was as though some conversos were seeking to reject formal Catholicism by interiorizing their religion, unquote. Now, the alumbrados, to be clear, were a Christian sect, and they were not Lutheran, though. But they were similarly, I guess you could say they were Protestant, in that theirs was a Christian protest against the church. Alumbrados come from the, uh, excuse me, from the verb alumbrar, to illuminate. And this is a system of belief that was endemic to Castile. Now, they rejected external rituals, such as meditating on the Passion, bowing before the Eucharist, praying to saints as intercessors. They, like I said, did not believe priests were necessary as mediators between humanity and the divine. And at any rate, there really wasn't anything remotely Jewish about the Alambrados, um, except that some of them were conversos. Uh, there really weren't anything Lutheran about them either. Alambrado beliefs predated Lutherism. After inquisitors began searching for Lutheranismo amongst the Spanish population, they decided that Lutheranismo definitely existed in Alambrados, and they started accusing them of Lutheranismo, which is a little ridiculous, but hey, they were conversos, I guess. Many groups of Alambrados were led by women, and these women were called beatas. And a, a, a beata is an unmarried woman who, quote, quested for holiness, unquote, but and so she would, is someone who would take a vow of chastity and poverty, and, but these were not nuns. One such beata was Isabel de la Cruz, who was denounced by the Inquisition in 1519 as alarm about Luther was beginning to spread. The inquiry into Isabel de la Cruz and other alumbrado leaders stretched over years. Isabel was arrested in April 1524, and the Inquisition issued an edict that pronounced Alambrado beliefs heretical the next year. Francesca Hernandez was another Alambrado with a group of followers at Valladolid. 
Hernandez was investigated by the Inquisition in 1519 and then again in 1524 before she was finally arrested by the Inquisition in March 1529. She was tortured until she revealed the names of others who practiced Lutheranismo, and especially until she revealed the printers who printed Alambrado writing. Now, in total, though, few Alambrados were killed by the Inquisition, but Alambrado texts were banned and burned. And a lot of people argue, it has been argued by historians, I should say, that an entire generation of spirituality in Spain was essentially silenced as a result. Excuse me. Now, many of the old Christians targeted by the Inquisition were intellectuals as well over time during this period. And the effects of the Inquisition on Spanish intellectualism it, it was kind of stifling over time. In the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, especially in the early 16th century, Spain was full of humanists, philosophers, and writers. I mean, and, and even at the end of the 16th century, you've got Miguel de Cervantes, who, who writes Don Quixote, amongst other books. Uh, it's a classic of Western literature. The Inquisition began censoring books in 1521, and, and this was pretty intermittent work until 1550, at which point the Inquisition began freaking out and banning books left and right, it seems. In 1551, the first list of censored books that was published in Spain um, was, you know, was circulated. Things got even more ramped up in the late 1550s. That's when actual Lutherans were discovered in Seville and Valladolid. More and more lists of banned books continued to be circulated through Spain. By 1583, the list of prohibited literature in the country was 2,315 items. The Inquisition continued to review books and other printed materials, and over the centuries, mind you, the Inquisition lasts until the 1800s. By the 19th century, when the Inquisition finally ends, I think as a result of this, there is certainly a dearth of Spanish intellectualism, of, of, of Spanish free thought as a result, at least in some subjects. Now, Bartolomé de Carranza y Miranda was one intellectual who was targeted by the Inquisition. Carranza was born in 1503 in Navarre, the son of poor Hidalgos. He entered the University of Alcala at the age of 12, and at 17 he joined the Dominican Order, where he went to study at Valladolid, and where his intellectual gifts won him a chair in theology. He obtained a doctorate in theology in Rome, and then returned to Spain in his early 30s, a famous theologian. Carranza was by all accounts a pious man, and in fact for many years was a censor for the Inquisition, deciding which books to ban. As his tenure there, he was offered numerous prestigious posts, like, you know, many of the Inquisitors were. He declined them all until eventually he was offered the most prestigious post of all, outside of Rome anyway, the Archbishopric of Toledo. A very important Archbishopric, and one that might make a bishop very, very wealthy. Well, Carranza always had a bitter enemy in Melkor Cano, who was another Dominican who out of envy of Carranza's rise in politics, made it his point to turn Carranza into a heretic. Carranza published a book titled Commentaries on the Christian Catechism in 1558, and it was essentially thoroughly orthodox in doctrine, 
Numerous other theologians in Spain agreed, but all Cano really needed was a few phrases. He took them, quoted them out of context, in an attempt to turn Carranza into a heretic. And this wasn't easy, because in addition to Carranza's reputation as archbishop, he wasn't technically really under the jurisdiction of the Inquisition. Only Rome could punish him. But Cana was successful mainly at the time because of the so-called Protestant crisis that was taking place in Spain. At around the same time that Cano began trying to vilify Carranza, hundreds of Protestants were uncovered in two cities, in Valladolid and Seville. On August 20th, 1559, ten armed familiars arrived at Carranza's residence. Carranza was arrested by inquisitorial authorities. The arrest would have caused a public scandal, and so the city was put under a curfew. In the silence of night and darkness, at midnight, the residents, mind you, had been warned not to look out their windows. And during this, at this time, Carranza was escorted out of the city to a home and kept in a private house, uh, locked in, he had a, a jail cell, essentially, a two-room jail cell, and was kept under house arrest for seven years. Now, during this time, the archbishop was not allowed any recourse to the sacraments, and politically, Carranza's story ends there. In terms of a human tragedy, that was just beginning. Spain refused to release Carranza. The crown did not want to relinquish any control to, Spain, to Rome, so when a delegation from Rome came to Spain to argue that Carranza had done nothing wrong, the Spanish crown simply ignored it, fell on deaf ears. The delegates were forced to write back to Rome that, quote, Nobody dares to speak in favor of Carranza for fear of the Inquisition. No Spaniard would dare to absolve the archbishop, even if he were believed innocent, because this would mean opposing the Inquisition. The authority of the latter would not allow it and admit that it had imprisoned Carranza unjustly. The most ardent defenders of justice here consider that it is better for an innocent man to be condemned than for the Inquisition to suffer disgrace." Unquote. Now, ultimately... Carranza's defenders did eventually get him transferred to Rome, but his case remained unsettled. He was in Rome, in under house arrest there, for another nine years. That's when finally Spain and Rome came up with a compromise to settle the issues of jurisdiction, but as for Carranza, he died 18 days after his case was finally settled in 1576. And as for for the Inquisition, you know, this is kind of an example of the dual authority that it was claiming right from the beginning of as soon as it was established. Now, on the one hand, the Inquisition claimed that because it was an ecclesiastical authority, it was exempt from the secular authorities, but because it was a secular authority, it was also exempt from the ecclesiastical authorities in Rome. Basically, inquisitors argued that they resented both Pope and the king and were thus entitled to precedence over every other authority, archbishops, viceroys, anybody, well, other than the Spanish king. Incidentally, at times, church and city officials in Spain sometimes would refuse to attend autos de fe for that very reason. Now, at any rate, 
We have an example of how the Inquisition investigated prohibited materials, thanks to the Inquisition of Toledo, which left a record of a letter it was investigating nailed up in the town square 1559. The Inquisitors there reported, quote, We are carefully and secretly applying ourselves to investigating academics regarding some pamphlets found at the doors and round town. All teachers were called in, one after the other, and were asked under oath if they knew the handwriting. All inns and hostels in Toledo have been reached to learn who has stayed there during the past two months from whence they came, what papers they had in their possession. This search was also undertaken in hospitals. Notaries were called in to identify the handwriting. These and other methods are used. No trace has been found, however. It appears that, the apostate, that an apostate monk is the author." Unquote. Another inquisitorial agent made a similar report about fighting Lutheranismo. He wrote about his investigations in Montpellier, a French town. While undercover in France, that agent discovered, quote, several Lutherans from France who have close contacts with Spain. I pretended to be a heretic myself and indicated my intention to take some books, such as the works of John Calvin, to Spain. Since I was afraid of the Inquisition, I did not dare to purchase any there, and they, as believers, desired to help me in this regard. A bookseller and a merchant volunteered to bring the books secretly to Barcelona, to the home of one of their friends who, as they said, who were, as they said, of the faith, unquote. The Inquisition loved banning books, burning banned books, and technically I think that made it very difficult for a lot of people in Spain to actually learn about Lutheranism, which is probably why the Inquisition had such trouble finding it, and why, in addition, few actual Lutherans ever seem to have been uncovered by the Inquisition. Most people trying Lutheranismo were either alumbrados or seems to have been expressing atheistic or agnostic beliefs and were charged with Lutheranismo for that. But small groups of Protestants did live in Spain in secret. One was in Seville, like I said, where perhaps several hundred Protestant sympathizers lived in secret until the 1550s, when the Inquisition seized 450 Bibles. Another group of perhaps 100 Protestants existed in Valladolid, Leaders of the civilian group were arrested in 1557 for the crime of introducing books from Geneva. After collecting information from these initial arrests, a wave of new arrests took place in 1558, including entire families. The Inquisitor General, Fernando de Valdez, exaggerated the number of Protestants that he was in fact arresting, too, to, quote, regain favor he had recently lost with the court of Spain, unquote. Charles wrote a revealing letter to his daughter in 1558 regarding Protestantism in Spain, which provides further evidence that the monarchy viewed the Inquisition primarily as a tool of control. Quote, I wanted to introduce an Inquisition to punish the heresies that some people had caught from neighboring Germany and England and France. Everyone opposed this on the grounds that there were no Jews among them. Finally, 
an order was issued declaring that all people of whatever state and condition who came under certain specified categories were to be ipso facto burnt and their goods confiscated. Necessity obligated me to act in this way, unquote. I'm sure, very necessity. The first significant auto-de-fe featuring Protestants was held at Valladolid on Sunday, May 21st, 1559. Thirty stood accused of Lutheranismo, of them fourteen were burnt. Thirteen of the fourteen wept and died repentant. Francisco Herrero, though, from Toro, died unrepentant, which essentially means that thirteen friends and family members were strangled before being lit on fire while Herrero was burned alive. Now, on October 8th, later that year in Valladolid, a second auto was performed, this time in the presence of King Philip. Of the thirty accused, twenty-six were Protestants, and of these, twelve were burnt at the stake including four nuns. One of the accused, Carlos de Senso, had shown great fear and repentance in the days leading up to the auto de fe. That made him just the talk of town, a popular point of interest amongst the large crowd gathered in the days before to see the auto de fe. But in the end, as Senso realized that he was going to be executed, regardless of whether or not he repented to his inquisitors, and so, when they asked him to repent, he instead blasphemed again. Quote, In Jesus Christ alone do I hope, him alone I trust and adore, and placing my unworthy hand at his sacred side, I go through the virtue of his blood to enjoy the promises that he made to his chosen. Unquote. Then Carlos de Senso turned to King Philip. How could you let this happen? He is said to have called out to the king. Philip replied, If my own son were as wicked as you, I myself would carry the wood with which to burn you. Unquote. At any rate, that's how the story goes. Whether Philip actually said that is a little dubious. <laughs> Regardless of the veracity of Philip's supposed statement, Carlos de Senso and the others accused were burnt as impenitents. Carlos de Sento burnt alive while the king of Spain watched. Seville hosted its first auto de fe, filled with Protestants anyway, on Sunday, September 24, 1559. Seventy-six accused were present, nineteen of which were burnt as Lutherans, only one of them in effigy. The next auto was Sunday, the 22nd of December, 1560. Fifty-four accused were uh, condemned, fourteen burnt in person, three in effigy. In all, forty of the fifty-four accused were accused Protestants. Included in those burnts were two English sailors, a civilian mother named Leonor Gomez, and her three daughters. And, uh, well, anyway, in 1562, two more auto de fe's were held in Seville, which combined found 88 more Protestants punished, 18 of which were burnt in person, among them the prior of San Isidoro and four of his priests. Throughout the 1560s, the Inquisition focused on hunting more Protestants, but, and, 
by the they didn't find a lot. By the end of the decade, it seems that native Protestantism in Spain was almost totally extinguished. After 1562, almost everyone accused of heresy of the heresy of Lutheranismo were French, Flemish, or English residents of Spain. In the 16th century, 80 Frenchmen were executed as heretics. Another 100 were burnt in effigy, and 380 were sent to the galleys. Now, the inquisitors broadened the search for deviations and the Catholic faith as well. In the mid-16th century, in addition to Lutheranismo, the Inquisition went after all sorts of moral offenses, which the Inquisitors argued were proof that someone was not a true Christian. For example, the Inquisition argued no true Christian would blaspheme, no true Christian would make scandalous statements, or fornicate, or commit bigamy, or sodomy, etc., unless they were a heretic. By the 1550s, therefore, in the 1560s, that's when you start seeing more old Christians begin to be targeted in larger numbers. And with that said, even at that time, far fewer old Christians, at the height of the Protestant scare, far fewer old Christians were executed than minorities, except perhaps with the exception of those accused of homosexuality. That was a pretty quick way to, to find yourself burnt. Now, with that said, the Inquisition was, like I said, just unquestionably xenophobic and racist. And while it's true that more old Christians were targeted as the Protestant scare unfolded across Catholic Europe and in Spain, the truth is that the number of Protestants targeted pales in comparison to the increasing number of Muslims targeted as the 16th century proceeded. Now, like I said, Muslims kind of, you could say they got off easy in comparison to the Jews at the beginning, but... Um, similarly to the Jews, substantial numbers of Muslims had converted to Christianity over the centuries, and often by force through mass baptisms. Converted Jews, like I said, are known as conversos. Spaniards called converted moriscos moriscos, or worse things. They had a lot of pejoratives for them. Basically, the reason they escaped the persecution of the Inquisition for, in general, for a while, was the that Ferdinand and Isabella had given Muslims the insurance that they could retain property, customs, laws, and religion as part of the capitulation of Granada in 1492. Now, Ferdinand didn't really keep his word for long. Immediately after the capitulation of Granada, in fact, Muslims in Spain felt increasing pressure to convert. At first, this was mostly peaceful under the direction of Archbishop Hernando de Talavera, he carried out a relatively peaceful campaign that was designed to attract Islamic converts uh, to Christianity by allowing dances and music like the Zambra, a traditional Islamic uh, song and dance, to be performed at a Christian mass. Now, the bishop, uh, the Archbishop of Toledo, Francisco de Cisneros, uh, in contrast, did not at all believe in using these dances like Zambras to attract converts. And like I said, he will eventually become uh, an inquisitor general. At any rate, Cisneros began arguing for mass baptisms in 1497 and, in fact, converted a mosque in his archbishopric uh, during, in that year um, to, into a church. Two years later, 
Cisneros accompanied the Inquisition to Granada to investigate the Morisco population there, which provoked riots that began in December 1499, and these continued periodically in Muslim quarters of Spanish cities throughout the next couple of years. Now, by this time, the Spanish government was basically deciding to again on one of two ideas. Cisneros and a lot of people in Spain, kind of the the real the Catholic conservatives, argued that the Muslims of Granada forfeited these the rights they had uh, that had been guaranteed them in the, by the terms of the capitulation, and uh, as such, quote, they must be converted and enslaved. For as slaves, they will be better Christians, and the land will be pacified forever. Unquote. In contrast, Ferdinand favored another policy, which is more moderate in comparison, though it's not exactly very a good policy that is um, kind or anything. Quote, if your horse trips you up, you don't seize your sword and kill him. Instead, you give him a smack on his flanks. So my view, and the queen, is that these Moors be baptized. And if they don't become Christians, their children and grandchildren will. Unquote. Well, over the next few months after that debate happened and Ferdinand decided to on the conversions, mass baptisms began to occur in October of 1501. Um, in that uh, same month, a massive bonfire of Arabic books took place in Granada. Uh, a contemporary Arab leader and scholar, Yusei Venegas, uh, lamented, quote, if the king of the conquest does not keep faith, what can we expect from his successors? Unquote. Now... I've mentioned this in the previous episodes, but while I'm at it, Francisco de, Francisco de Cisneros uh, will actually rule the, as regent of Spain for a few years after Ferdinand's death, um, in addition to serving as Inquisitor General. So, uh, at any rate, Charles was only 16 at the time of him taking the crown. But anyway, February 12th, 1502. All Muslims in Castile on that date were ordered to convert or emigrate from, Cast from Spain. In Aragon, in contrast, the landed nobility found the Muslims to be a, quote, plentiful, cheap, and productive source of labor, unquote, and shielded their Muslim subjects from the Inquisition. Aragonese Muslims were spared forced conversion and in the Inquisition until after the revolt of Camineros, which kind of changed things in 1520. After the revolt of the Camineros failed, mass baptisms of the rural Muslim population took place in Valencia in 1522 to... I, I, it's hard to say if it was to make create moriscos or just to punish the rebellious nobility, but either way it happened. Once it did happen, the Inquisition promptly began to argue, well, it's not really right for some of the Aragon's Muslim population to be baptized without the rest following suit. Within a few years, this argument won the day. In 1526, mass baptisms took place in the, Aragon in the rest of the Aragonese realms, and in 1526, what this means then is by that point, all Muslims in Spain had been formally and officially be made Christians. Thus, they were subject to the Inquisition. According to Spanish law in 1526, Islam became an extinct religion in Spain. So, the Moriscos didn't feel the same way, obviously, a lot of them. And after 1526, they became increasingly targeted by the Inquisition. Inquisitors made a list of practices that they considered evidence of 
Islamismo, there were 36 possible infractions, which included circumcision, giving children Muslim names, singing Muslim songs or perverting zambras or other Muslim dances, or using prohibited Muslim musical instruments. Any of this or, or other rules might be enough to get the attention of the Inquisition. In 1538, Juan de Burgos, his wife Julia, and some friends gathered at his home, quote, for the Zambra, where they were dancing and singing in Arabic, and there they all ate dinner together, unquote. So said their servant, who testified in the Inquisition, making her a secret witness against her employers, the Burgoses. Now, with that said, Moriscos didn't really get the full eye of the Inquisition until the 1560s. At that point, the military threat of the Turkish Empire was continuing to rise, and the Inquisition turned its attention almost fully on eradicating all traces of Moorish culture in Spain. Maybe easier said than done, especially in Granada, where in the 1560s, a full 54% of the population consisted of Moriscos, and in some regions of Spain, such as, of Granada, excuse me, such as the well-defended Alpujara Mountains, Moriscos essentially comprised about 100% of the population. Well, in the 1560s, a series of new laws were passed that required Moriscos to give up things like their language, clothing, and customs, all of these were supposedly granted as rights in uh, in the capulation of Granada. <clears throat> um, in addition to these laws, inquisitorial surveillance of Moriscos grew to make sure that they were following the new laws, obviously, as you might imagine. And in 1568, as a result, a large community of Moriscos in the Sierra de Alpujarras, the mountains in Granada, responded with a violent insurrection. And what followed was a, quote, savage war between Christians and Muslims with atrocities on both sides and military repression was brutal. Thousands of Moriscos died, unquote. Perhaps 4,000 foreign Turks and Berbers crossed into Spain to fight alongside the, the Granadan insurgents. And the Moriscos fought for two years in what, uh, what might have very well been one of perhaps the most savage war fought in Europe that century. Eventually, that rebellion failed. Thousands of Moriscos were sold into slavery within Spain, and the Spanish government dispersed the remaining Morisco population of Granada throughout Castile instead. 80,000 Granadan Moriscos in total were forced from their homes after the vault in a Spanish version of essentially a Trail of Tears. Incidentally, the dispersal of Moriscos throughout Castile, where a few Muslims lived before, made those Moriscos much more visible to their very suspicious Castilian... Excuse me, I got the hiccups. The very suspicious Castilian neighbors. Now, ultimately, in 1609, the Moriscos will be expelled from Spain just, just completely. And thus, within a century a little over a century, and with the support of the Inquisition, Spanish authorities essentially almost completely removed two of the three cultures that had existed in Spain for centuries before that. Afterwards, 
After 1609, essentially only a few Morisco noble families and the Morisco slaves of old Christian nobility remained in Spain after that. Now, before that time, and from the 1560s on until 1609, Moriscos had it pretty rough. Francisco Nunez Muli was one Morisco who wrote a letter. He titled it A Morisco Plea in 1567. He detailed the impressive new laws that led to the rebellion, and I'd like to paraphrase that letter for you. Quote, Anyone who looks at the new laws from a distance will think they would be easy to follow, but the difficulties they imply are very great. The clothing our women wear is not even Moorish clothing. It is simply the local clothing, like the clothing of Castile. And in other places, the headdresses, clothing, and shoes serves to distinguish people. Who can deny that the clothing of the Moors and Turks is very different from these people's clothing? What good can it do anyone to take away our clothing? Keeping in mind that we have spent a great deal of money on it, money earned in the service of previous kings. Why would they want to make us lose more than three million gold pieces we have tied up in this clothing, wiping out the merchants, traders, jewelers, and others who make their living by making clothing, shoes, and jewelry in the Morisco style? Our weddings and festivals and the pastimes to which we are accustomed do not in any way prevent us from being Christian. I do not even see how these things can be considered more ceremonies. What good does it do to make us keep our doors open? That would allow thieves to rob us, rapists to force themselves on our women, and policemen and scribes the opportunity to destroy our people. Can it really be true that the baths serve a ceremonial purpose? Oh, certainly not. Many people gather at the baths, and most of the bathers are Christians. The old surnames we have serve for people to know each other, And without them, knowledge of persons and lineages will be lost. What good does it have to such memories lost? Then let us speak of the Arabic language, which is the greatest issue of all. How can one take away people's native tongue with which they were born and raised? It would be very difficult, almost impossible, for the old people of Spain of the old people to learn Spanish in the days they still have left, much less in the brief period of three years, even if they did nothing to go but to go to school the whole time. This is clearly a rule that was created to harm us. Unquote. Now, like I said, an expulsion of the Moriscos with Spain was original was ultimately ordered. That happened that will happen on April fourth, sixteen oh nine. The process took place in stages through 1614, during which time about 300,000 Moriscos were forced to leave Spain, and this was an unmitigated disaster. A plague actually occurred in Spain just prior to the expulsion, and the additional loss of manpower meant that Spanish agriculture and finances were greatly affected. Both land productivity and tax revenue decreased substantially, and in addition, the Inquisition lost business by this move, though the Inquisition didn't really have much to do with the expulsion, other than, I imagine, the vast majority, if not all, of the Inquisitors like liked the idea. Yeah, we'll get them. But not all clergy were in love with the idea. The Archbishop of Seville, Dom Pedro Vaca de Castro, argued strongly against it. De Castro asked the crown 
that to, to consider that there were Morisco women who were married to old Christians. And what about the children? Quote, there is also no danger from the little children. Where must they go? And especially those who have neither father nor mother. Will they not be enslaved and lose their faith in religion? They are not of age to be punished. There are others who lent service to Spain in the last rebellion. They left their relatives, served your majesty, and it does not seem likely that they would rebel. Unquote. The Castro's pleas, though, to the crown went unanswered. And in fact, um, the Morisco expulsion went on, and so too did the Spanish Inquisition. That continued on for another 200 years, ultimately lasting until the 19th century before being finally finished off. And now, regardless of whether or not you've been enjoying this episode so far, and if you haven't been enjoying it, I don't know why you're listening, but thank you anyway. So far, you might be wondering why it is exactly I am spending so much time talking about the Spanish Inquisition considering that this podcast is not a history of Spain, but about the history of the Atlantic world. Well, I'm going to get to that very soon, but first, I have a confession to make. Another one. As bad a picture as I have painted of the Spanish Inquisition to you thus far, the Inquisition has a worse reputation than it deserves. I mean, don't get me wrong. It deserves a terrible reputation. But if I may ask, one of my most favorite questions. Compared to what? The Spanish expulsion of the Jews was less harsh than the one that happened to the Jews of Portugal in 1497, at least in comparison to the fact that in addition to the expulsion, King Manuel also kidnapped hundreds or thousands of children and sent them to Sao Tome where almost all of them died. We can also compare the expulsion of the Jews to Spain to pretty much everywhere else in Europe. In the late 13th and 14th centuries, Jews were expelled by royal decrees from Naples, England, and France. Many other cities and principalities across Europe. Jews were in fact outlawed in France in 1394, a hundred years before Spain outlawed them. They were outlawed in England in 1290, 200 years before. Similarly, based on how witchcraft was treated in Europe, the Inquisition could be downright liberal. There are a few records of women and girls being punished for witchcraft, but the few times that witches were burnt after an inquisitorial trial, the organization punished the inquisitors responsible for doing the burning. The Spanish Inquisition seems to have largely viewed witchcraft as a type of mental illness. One inquisitorial official, Alonso de Salazar Frias, made a report on the issue and concluded, quote, I have not found the slightest evidence from which to infer that a single act of, act of witchcraft has really occurred. Indeed, my previous suspicions have been strengthened by new evidence from this visitation, that the evidence of the accused alone, without external proof, is insufficient to justify arrest. I deduce that there are neither witches nor bewitched until they were talked and written about, unquote. The idea that witchcraft wasn't to be punished is, on the one hand, evidence that the Inquisition's zeal for religion was based on racism and xenophobia, I think, more than actual 
uh, heresy. Similarly, most of the Protestants, like I said, most Protestants killed by the Inquisition were foreign-born, or conversos. Spain wasn't the only place Protestants were murdered. In the Netherlands, though, between 1557 and 1562, 103 heretics were born, were burned, which was more than in Spain during that same period. The Huguenot Protestants in France, who were targeted for massacres throughout the 16th century, I mean, there were thousands of Huguenots in Spain, in France, who were killed during the St. Bartholomew's Massacre alone. Between five and 30,000 people were killed during that single incident, let alone the entire century through in, in France. And if you think that's bad, I mean, I wouldn't even begin to know how to guess how many people died in Germany as a result of conflict between Lutherans and Catholics. In England... Bloody Mary burned three times the number of heretics in England during her rule than were burnt in Spain during that period. Likewise, the rule of Elizabeth? Well, she burned an awful lot of heretics in England herself, now over decades of time, but a lot more Catholic heretics died under Elizabeth's rule than Protestant heretics died under Bloody Mary's, who has a worse reputation. And of course... While the medieval Inquisition was not in Aragon and barely made a presence in Castile, the medieval Inquisition, just as ruthless as the Spanish Inquisition, ran rampant through France, Germany, and Italy. Heretics were burnt there just like they were in Spain. In truth, the one thing that really differentiates the Spanish Inquisition from basically the judicial systems elsewhere in Europe was that Inquisitors wrote everything down. In fact, the Inquisition is one of the only institutions of the early modern period with such extensive records. Now, with all of that said, the reason I'm talking about all of this is because the Inquisition had a tremendous impact on the history of the Atlantic world. Jews and Muslims who fled Spain, and Conversos and Moriscos who fled Spain, and perhaps Protestants who fled Spain, and anybody else who was fleeing Spain because of the Inquisition to escape persecution. Well, sometimes they went to the Atlantic. Now, the Jews and Muslims who wanted to flee Spain were not allowed, theoretically, to take gold, silver, or weapons with them. In fact, most of their valuables, therefore, because they could not take their homes, those who wished to keep the faith, most of them went to Portugal, the coast of North Africa. They went to the Italian states, to Greece, to the realms of the Ottoman Empire, like, of course, to the New World. The first European to set foot in the New World was an interpreter on Columbus's expedition. His name was Louis de Torres. He was a converso who spoke Arabic. Mind you, I'm not, not, not counting the Vikings. In fact, Edward Kritzler, the author of Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean, argues that a number of secret Jews made their way amongst Columbus's original crew because they were attempting to escape the Inquisition. Now, I don't know why, say, Torres signed up for the voyage, but I bet if you were able to ask him, he'd tell you that being on Columbus's ships sure beat sitting in Spain, waiting for the Inquisition to find him. 
Torres wasn't alone. Examining the historical record of the early Spanish Maine, we find that by 1495, a number of converso settlers made their way to Hispaniola. Even though Spain banned conversos from going to the New World in 1493. In 1515, in fact, some conversos were sent back to Spain from Hispaniola to face the inquisitorial trials that they um, were trying to escape from. Now, there was a community of secret Jews who called themselves the Portugals who formed a community on Jamaica in 1510. They were some of the only settlers willing to live on the island owned by Columbus's son Diego, which didn't have a lot of gold on it. Ultimately, their descendants formed much of the population of what would become the city of Port Royal. In 1520, one of the Portugals, João Rodriguez Cabrillo, led 30 men armed with crossbows to Mexico to join the conquest there. Later, in fact, Cabrillo, a converso, will discover California in 1542, will get there eventually. In April, on, excuse me, on April 22nd, 1500, when Brazil was claimed for the Portuguese crown by the Admiral Pedro Alvarez Cabral, he had with him a converso named Gaspar de Gama. Now, we first met Gaspar de Gama in my first series, Rise of the Conquistadors. At that point, he was going by the name of Moncade and was living in India. There, he agreed to pilot Vasco da Gama's ships to port. Now, Moncade claimed to be a converso, but for your information, Vasco da Gama described him as a, quote, renegade Jew, unquote, who, meaning someone who had fled um, in 1492. When they returned to Portugal, uh, Moncade took the name Alonso Perez, and this runaway Jew from Castile was baptized. He took the name Gaspar da Gama, with Vasco da Gama as his godfather, and then later sailed with Cabral. When they returned from uh, Brazil, Gaspar apparently started telling a lot of the other conversos in Portugal that Brazil was a safe haven. Now, with that said, other conversos got sent to Brazil by Portugal as part of the sentence of banishment that was offered to so many Portuguese criminals. Others, uh, like I said, took... Um, took Gaspar de Gama's advice and went there purposefully to escape persecution. Some went to make a profit, like Fernando de Noronha, who was a merchant. He obtained a monopoly contract for trade in Brazil. His Jewish ancestry might have, in fact, even contributed to the change in name from St. Veracruz, or whatever else the Portuguese trying to calling it, to Brazil. At any rate, I say that because Noronha also once had a ship which left Portugal called the San Cristóvão, or St. Christopher in English, and which once he uh, arrived in the Americas, he renamed a Judea, or a, a Jewess, a, Jew, a Jewish woman. Like many of the Catholic, of it, excuse me, unlike many of their Catholic peers in the New World, the Jews and others escaping the Inquisition weren't looking to get rich quick with gold, silver, and slaves, and then return to Europe, they were looking for a safe home. So the conversos, in fact, become pivotal, looking for a home in the creation of the sugar trade in Brazil. The first sugar plantation in Brazil was imported from Madeira by a converso who, uh, in 1516, by the end of the century, 
Over 200 sugar mills were in Brazil. Most were owned by conversos. Now, earlier I mentioned that the conversos were going across the New World. Um, they're different in a lot of ways than the Sephardic Jews who are also spreading around the same world at the same time. So you've got conversos escaping the Inquisition. You've got people refusing to uh, convert escaping. Uh, but, and these two groups are different, but they have some connections. The success, particularly, of Portuguese conversos in Brazil when it comes to cultivating sugar attracts a lot of Sephardic investment, hence the great growth in the sugar mills. Now, a lot of this investment are coming from Jews who fled Spain, and uh, a lot of them live in Amsterdam, and a lot of them use some of the wealth they're gaining from Brazilian sugar grown by conversos to then begin financing war and piracy against their Spanish enemies. Now, all of that's going to come in a much later episode. But for now, what is happening is that conversos are going to Brazil, becoming economically connected to the Sephardic community in Europe. And those people are the people who left Spain because they refused to convert from Judaism to Christianity. And that means Brazil becomes con connected to Amsterdam. And as the 16th century goes on, more and more Dutch interlopers begin arriving in the Americas, at first arriving to smuggle slaves in what the Dutch called krakas tobak, what you might know as tobacco, um, smuggling along the coasts of Santo Domingo, Cuba, and western Venezuela. Now, I've been talking a lot less about moriscos than conversos, if you haven't noticed this episode, and frankly, that's because a lot less has been written about them. There is a rich parallel historiography concerning Spanish and Portuguese conversos in the New World, according to Caroline Cook, and that is why she wrote the book Forbidden Passages, Muslims and Moriscos in Colonial Spanish America to further round out what's really going on. Now, these same royal decrees that are preventing conversos from going to the Spanish New World prevented Moriscos uh, from going, and but... These immigration controls seem pretty ineffective. There are free and enslaved Moriscos traveling from Spain to Spanish America clandestinely, uh, is what this book reveals to me, but we only have records for those who were denounced. And that doesn't even start happening until the Inquisition arrives in Mexico in the 1570s. At any rate, one woman who was denounced by the Inquisition in Mexico City when it arrived was Maria Ruiz. Maria Ruiz was born in Spain near Granada, Near the end of her life, as the Inquisition arrived, she spent some time deciding how she wished to die, as a Muslim or a Christian. In 1594, she denounced herself to the Inquisition in Mexico City. She wanted to be reconciled with the Catholic faith, reincorporated into the church, because she felt bad about having continued to recite Islamic prayers, which she had learned as a child. Caroline Cooks asks us, what events during her lifetime might have prompted her and countless individuals to have to choose which faith they considered to be the true one in which they might gain salvation? So similarly to how we talked about how conversos ranging from doing everything they could in secret to preserve their Jewish identity to being pious Catholics who happen to have Jewish ancestors. This is also true of the Moriscos, I want to be clear. Now, 
For one way that conversos and moriscos could get to uh, the New World was by being a young woman. For every ten European men in the New World of the early 16th century, there was one European woman, so senoritas, like Maria Ruiz, were in very high demand, you could say. So, in combination with the fact that the Inquisition was specifically targeting converso and morisco women, and the fact that a lot of guys in the New World were really looking for a European wife, this meant that there were multiple factors that pulled some women uh, to the New World, such as the four Estrada sisters. The Estrada sisters were the four converso daughters of a certain Alonzo Estrada. He was a royal treasurer to Ferdinand. He, he uh, sent or, or, or uh, paid for, or had, you know, who knows how, how it worked, but all four of the Estrada daughters went to Mexico. They were not, and they found plenty of suitors, who none of which were in the slightest bit worried about their wives' blemished ancestry. This is the same story, basically, of Francesca and Beatrice Ordaz, two converso sisters who came to Mexico to escape the Inquisition. Beatrice Estrada was a converso, who in Spain was escaping the Inquisition. In New Spain was a hot tamale, and she ended up married to Velázquez de Coronado, a conquistador who sought the seven cities of gold. Beatrice's sister Luisa married George de Alvarado, so instead of being targeted by the Inquisition, she became wife to the future governor of Guatemala and a conqueror of Mexico. Numerous Morisco heretics were discovered in the New World when the Inquisition was established there. One was even an ex-governor of Mexico, Louis de Caraval, of course, since conversos, Jews, and Muslims, and Merskos participated in the conquest, that couldn't, shouldn't really come as too much of a surprise. Hernando Alonso was a carpenter responsible for much of the Spaniard's success in Mexico, as we will talk about next episode, if in case you have not heard of him. After it, Alonso became the wealthiest farmer in Mexico after he was awarded a large tract of land north of Mexico City and, after, and became the biggest supplier of meat for the colony. Other Moriscos made their way to the New World in the role of slave, such as the enslaved Morisco known to us only as Estevaniso. He accompanied the conquistador Alvar Nunez Cabaza de Vaca across the American Southwest, and that's going to be a wild episode. Now, with that said, in the early years of the Atlantic world, Moriscos were common on ships um, going to the Americas. A lot of Moriscos, in fact, found themselves attached, in cases of enslavement, or attached themselves to ships bound for the Americas, before it was known that America was not Asia. The Portuguese found Morisco translators necessary during the 15th century as they made their way down the Atlantic coast into Africa and ultimately to, to India in their... Uh, attempt to recruit and uh, capture slaves, they found uh, Moriscos, with their knowledge of Arabic, to be very uh, helpful. And uh, later navigators, like Columbus and Magellan, both recruited Arabic speakers for their voyages. And just like the conversos I mentioned, some of the degradados left behind in Brazil and Africa by the Portuguese were Moriscos as well. Um, the, the Portuguese loved leaving people uh, in, in various places and saying, you, you live here, turn this place Portuguese. I know you're not Portuguese, but do it anyway. Other Moriscos got to the New World by virtue of their being excellent craftsmen. 
Now, talented Morisco artisans were sometimes, in fact, requested in the New World by Spanish colonial officials, even though they were forbidden. One such artisan was Diego Herador. He was a shoemaker who was summoned before Mexican inquisitors in May 23, 1576, so that he could answer questions about his name. Diego confessed he had changed his name to Herador because his parents were Moriscos. His maternal grandmother was executed by the Inquisition, and he did not want to get any undue attention because of his background. He obtained the paperwork necessary to travel to the New World by bringing four old Christian witnesses to uh, testify to the Spanish officials that Herador was a good Christian, and he had limpieza de sangre, purity of blood. Now, Diego Herador's case is particularly instructive in telling us how one might skirt the law prohibiting new Christians from the New World. After obtaining his paperwork, Herador was supposed to take his paperwork to the Casa de Contracion in Seville, and they would process it, and then he would be allowed to go on any Spanish ship he wanted. Now, instead of doing that, um, Herador took a trip to Lisbon, and then from Lisbon, he sailed for the Canary Islands, effectively dodging Spanish officials. I don't even know if he would have needed the paperwork, um, who otherwise would have wanted to give him a background check. Herador instead simply boarded a passenger ship to the Canaries, um, then got off it. He found another passenger ship, also with a Portuguese captain, that was headed for New Spain. This was a well-traveled route, in fact that apparently was used by all sorts of folks who wished to avoid Spanish control but still trade in Spanish America. These were the tricks used by Portuguese, English, French, Dutch, and other European merchants who wished to get to America without paying Spanish taxes. Conversos and Moriscos also took advantage of these so-called secret routes. In fact, despite all the power of the Inquisition had in so many aspects of Spanish law, the institution specifically did not have jurisdiction over false licenses. So beyond a way to get to the New World, for many conversos and moriscos like Diego Herador, traveling illicitly to the New World was nothing more than a way to escape the Inquisition. And it wasn't really that hard to do. So, Charles V, in fact, issued a decree in 1540 in an attempt to punish foreign captains that, quote, pretend to load their ships for the Canary Islands and go secretly to Hispaniola and other parts of our Indies, unquote. But that decree didn't seem to work at all, because in 1558, Charles issued another decree to regulate captains that, quote, pretend to be going to Brazil, but due to a storm, they docked in these parts, unquote. His successor, Philip II, was bothered as well by what he considered illicit trade and unwanted travelers. Quote, they passed to our Indies secretly, some as sailors, others as soldiers, and others pretending to be merchants or their agents. Others go through the Canary Islands and find other routes and ways to pass. Under these guises, Men pass who are thugs and of sinful life and poor example. And some are prohibited persons, 
Some people leave from ports that are outside of these kingdoms, in foreign and domestic ships, and pretend that with bad weather they docked in the Indies. With this deceit they pass and acquire goods and estates, and there give it to their heirs." Unquote. The Inquisition likewise complained about, quote, "...infected persons," unquote, leaving Spain via the Canary Islands and escaping inquisitorial justice, if you could call it that. Royal decrees that I quoted, and these speak to the number of desertions as well that were happening in the Spanish army and navy. Sure, only legal Christians could go to the New World as colonists and conquistadors, but you sure could be a Morisco and a Converso and sign up for the Spanish armed forces. Hell, you could be Italian or English or French and they would accept you in the Spanish Navy. From there, many Spanish soldiers and sailors were then stationed in the Indies and many of those who got stationed in the Americas simply decided to go AWOL when they arrived. In fact, visitors of Havana in the 16th century often remarked that the city was international, comprised of numerous deserters from Genoa, Greece, Venice, England, and France, besides those who came from Spain. So, for although conversos and moriscos could not get to the New World, uh, excuse me, so for while conversos and moriscos uh, this would be for men, then, who could go to the New World and it, who could not go to the New World in any other way. Uh, joining the Army and the Navy uh, might still enable them to get there. Diego Romero was one such Morisco. He traveled illicitly to the New World and ultimately became an encomendero in New Granada. He was accused by the Inquisition later of being a runaway North African slave. During his trial, Romero defended himself successfully as a privileged conquistador whose services to the crown entitled him to retain his encomiendo. Romero wasn't alone. Now, most Moriscos who fled Spain went to North Africa, but those who went to America often hoped to forge new lives for themselves because there was just less surveillance. In America, a Morisco might claim to be an old Christian. Why not? If he gained honors or encomiendas, then a Morisco would establish himself amongst the local elite. I should say Morisco or Converso. Incidentally, this is the motivation for plenty of non-noble old Christians who go to the Americas. In America, a common Spaniard might find land. And what else was nobility other than a man who owns land? In 1546... The, an inspection of the colony of New Spain was made by an inspector, Francisco Tello de Sandoval. He reported in uh, his inspection, one, an interesting case of a Morisco, which involved the interpreter of the Viceroy, Antonio de Mendoza, who uh, took his post as Viceroy in 1535. Mendoza's interpreter, Antonio Ortiz, as reported by Sandoval, was engaged in a plot with three other Moriscos, Francisco de Triana, Marcos Romero, and Alonso Ortiz de Zuniga, of illegally selling slaves and cheating people with whom they were dealing with. The men, quote, lived more like Muslims than Christians, unquote, according to Sandoval. Now, the Spanish authorities, when they read this report, 
um, and which, by the way, contributed greatly to the expansion of the Inquisition across the Atlantic. Um, and perhaps, perhaps the greatest concern for the Inquisition uh, and, for, and for Spanish authorities was the fact that Triana, who reportedly was living like a Muslim, was also running a tavern and selling pulque to Indians and Africans. Now, Spanish authorities had absolutely no desire whatsoever of allowing what they might be potential Islamic proselytizing in the New World. They were suspicious that Triana and the other Moriscos uh, were engaging in, quote, conversion, uh, uh, excuse me, conversation and dwelling with Indians and among Indians, unquote. In addition to the fact that they were Moriscos, Spain was attempting to control all relationships between Spaniards and Indians, generally speaking. Triana was ultimately tried for bigamy. He was cohabitating with Indian women simultaneously. He had a wife back in Spain. The judge of the Audiencia of Mexico stated, in fact, that Triana was, quote, such a liar that he never or only by mistake tells the truth, and a very bad Christian who never enters any church, nor has anyone seen him confess, unquote. Now, Triana comes across as a dirtbag um, when you get into what, what he's accused of. And that very well might be an accurate description of him, but with that said, it doesn't really make it clear how that differentiates him, Romero, or Zuniega, the three accused Moriscos, from being, frankly, any different than any other conquistador uh, in the New World. The charges against Romero was that he was, quote, a very poor man of vile roots without honor or shame, unquote. In fact, the fact that they were investigated means that we have records of them, but for what, like I said, I, I don't know how they were different than the other dirtbag conquistadors, uh, Christian or Morisco or Converso or otherwise. Uh, but also, the fact that we have records of these three men makes me wonder how many other conquistadors were Conversos or Moriscos, but successfully escaped the Inquisition and just escaped into the records of time, escaped from the records of time. Um, like I said, a lot of Moriscos, despite the ban of Muslims, arrived as slaves of their Christian masters. Um, a lot of these men participated, or their fathers participated, in the conquest of Granada before coming to the New World. Uh, a lot of Morisco and Conversa women arrived. Uh, one Morisco woman who arrived was named Maria. She was the Berberisca slave of Bartolome de Añana and Villanueva, if I'm saying his name correctly. He arrived in New Spain to assume a secretarial post in the government. Um, Bartolome Enaña sent witnesses to the authorities before leaving Spain that testified to Maria's behavior, stating she was, quote, a Christian because they see her go to mass and pray and she does Christian works, unquote. And so instead of being refused on the grounds of being Maris uh, a Morisco, Maria obtained the documents necessary to emigrate. In 1578, the crown ordered a certain Rui, Roy Diaz de Mendoza to return his two Morisco slaves. I should be saying Morisca and Caversa when I speak about the women, by the way. I apologize for my terrible Spanish grammar. He apologized. Uh, excuse me. I apologize. He was ordered to return two Morisca slaves he brought to New Spain so they could be punished for four years. And if he did not comply, then he would be punished for four years. In 1512, Hernando de Peralta, similar to Ananya, received license to bring two Esclavas Blancas to San Juan, 
Esclavas Blancas, or white slaves, was a term often implied to enslaved Moriscas. In 1537, the licensate Inogo Lopez de Cervantes brought two Esclavas Blancas, in addition to four African slaves, who were, quote, raised in his household, quote, unquote, as Christians, which is why he was allowed to take his slaves with him. In 1543, one Esclava Blanca named Juana petitioned for her freedom when her master sold her to another Spaniard and had her case tried before the Royal Audiencia of Panama. Four years later, in 1547, a a judge finally ruled that Juana and her daughter were free. Other Muslim slaves were brought from Africa, as I've kind of been getting at. Now, the slave trade, I've mentioned this before, is a deep dive all on its own. It requires a whole different series. The series that we're on, Conquest of the Americas, isn't really the, I think, the best place to fully dive into that. But for now, let me say that perhaps something like 25% of all African slaves in the Spanish Caribbean during the 16th century were Muslims. Or at least of the approximately 200 Africans transported to Havana in 1575 to construct the military of Fort of La Fuera, that contained 45 Islamic and Turkish slaves. So that's what I'm kind of basing that on. Spanish officials worried about African Muslim slaves because they were potentially rebellious, though. Muslims were often literate in Arabic and thus able to plot rebellion in secret. But the demands for slaves were so high, and the reputation for Muslims as excellent craftsmen such, that Muslim slaves became pretty common in the Spanish Caribbean anyway, as well as on the coast of South America. And ultimately, as the end of the 16th century drew near, Spanish officials in fact became increasingly concerned that their Muslim slaves were going to help Dutch interlopers in an attack against Spanish interests. Now, While most Spaniards did not think well of Muslims and Moriscos, there was also one profession a Morisco might have, which would make him very desired and admired in both Spain and the New World both. That's that of the medicine man or doctor. Muslim medicine was just, plain and simple, more advanced than Christian medicine in the 16th century. There were even European charlatans who took advantage of this by pretending to be Muslim so that they could sell their renemides and tonics to a more believing audience. Il Barbaresco, Il Tercetto, Il Pergiano. These were all three Italians who paraded themselves about Europe as Turkish doctors, or at least I think so. I guess it's possible there were charlatans who were really Ottomans, passing as Europeans, passing as pretend Ottomans. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, anyway, in the 16th century Spanish America, a number of itinerant healers traveled about selling medical services which hint at the Muslim influence on Spanish colonial medicine. One doctor in, uh, in the Spanish New World was Lopez de Aponte. Aponte often angered his patients, who nevertheless kept hiring him because he was a good doctor. He would often do things like call the Virgin Mary that woman, as in, bring me that woman, or here, you take that woman. But nevertheless, he was a popular physician. His Islamic medicine techniques uh, were used rather than counting on the help of the Christian saints. Um, And other 16th century doctors in Spanish America occasionally um, were 
recorded as using the technique of hechizada, which means basically a Spanish word for Muslim sorcery. Now, obviously not everyone was a fan of this hechizada. Uh, one Jesuit theologian remarked that, quote, as a result of the Moorish occupation of Spain, the magical arts were virtually the only subjects being taught in Toledo, Seville, and Salamanca, unquote. I guess he wasn't a big fan of the medical schools of Spain. Yet, despite the seeming ease with which a lot of conversos and moriscos kind of found themselves across the Atlantic. I want to point out it is definitely not always possible for those people to have gotten to the New World. In 1537, as just one example, the Bishop of Mexico, Friar Juan de Zumarraga, requested a group of married moriscos be allowed to travel to New Spain so that they could teach the indigenous peoples there the art of raising silkworms and producing silk, but the crown rejected this request. Likewise, the Inquisition did eventually follow these people into the New World, which is why we have records of conversos and moriscos getting in trouble in, in the New World. But with that said, inquisitorial officials often complained about the difficulty of policing thought crimes on the frontier. In addition, there were numerous bishops established in the New World who got there decades before the Inquisition. And some of these uh, bishops and some of these other um, religious orders controlled substantial estates with uh, thousands of Indian subjects. And uh, these guys have no desire to relinquish the authority to, that they have in the New World to the Inquisition. Um, we'll get all of that into a future episode when we talk about life in Spanish America. Now... I just want to leave you, though, with the impression, um, for now, that because of the Inquisition, the colonization of Spanish America maybe wasn't quite all that really different from the colonization of British America. I mean, it was two things at once. Yes, it was a horrible conquest and a genocide of indigenous peoples by righteous Christian knights of Spain all fueled by the chattel slavery of Africans. But it was also a chance at freedom and escape for other Europeans who were also subject to the cruelties of European society. At any rate, as for this episode, I think it's about time I wrapped up. Crap, we're about four hours now. I struggled a bit um, if I can admit this, with how to finish out how to tell this story. Um, briefly, I, I want to mention on Saturday, May 30th, 2020, I was in the process of writing this episode and I decided to go to a protest in support of Black Lives Matter to march for justice in an attempt to get more police accountability. The murderers of people like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and far, far too many other people, I think... I, they must be held accountable. I, I personally, I, I'm ashamed that I'm 38 years old and until now I had not been to a march uh, for this reason. After that march I conclu uh, was concluded, though, I was, uh, in a, along with in a crowd of people, I, uh, we were fired upon by police officers um, with tear gas, pepper spray, and rubber bullets. And one of those rubber bullets struck me in the right hand and actually broke my index finger. Um, I got a neat scar. Um, 
I have never before seen state violence. Um, you know, let alone been, I, I, I guess, a victim. But as a consequence of that experience, it took me a, a lot of extra time to finish writing this episode. Um, I mean, for starters, with a broken index finger, it's a little tough to type. <laughs> um, in addition, it was difficult uh, for me to not flavor uh, the episode too much by that experience. Um, and it's not that I don't think it should be. It's not that I don't see parallels between the violence of the state that I experienced, what African Americans and far too many others have experienced far worse than me at the hands of the estate. And, and I, there are parallels between that and the Spanish English, and I see that. There are a lot of parallels. I'm mad as hell about it. But the story I'm telling here about the Spanish Inquisition, I want to be clear, I, this is not my story. This is the story of men and women like Elvira del Campo, Maria Gonzalez, Diego Herador, Maria Ruiz, Carlos de Senso, everyone else I mentioned in this episode was targeted by the Inquisition, the tens of thousands who I did not mention in this episode were likewise robbed of their liberty, property, sometimes their life. Now, I am also cognizant that I live in a nation with a constitution, a Bill of Rights, 16th century Spain, the place where the revolt of the communeros failed in 1522, is not a place where there was a constitution, there was no Bill of Rights. The society I live in, the United States in the 21st century, is significantly less oppressive than 16th century Spain. So while parallels exist, um, I'm aware that things are different and, and better here in many ways. For now, anyways. It hasn't always been the case, in my opinion. And we live in turbulent times, to say the least. I do not know what the future holds. By examining the history of the Spanish Inquisition, though, I think we are reminded that if we think things are bad now, well, they sure could get a whole lot worse. And I think that also means we have to be vigilant, proactive in safeguarding freedom for everyone. That's part of, big part of why that I went out to a march was that this is the research for this uh, this uh, episode inspired me. Um, I don't know. Especially in times like these, I think it's important to be vigilant and proactive in safeguarding liberty. Or at least that's my opinion. At any rate, I am going to leave you with this episode to form your own opinions with a poem, though, written by a German, Martin Neimuller. He was a German who did not stand against the Nazis. And he wrote this poem in regret. First they came for the communists. I did not speak out. Because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out. I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, but there was no one left to speak 
in my defense. Martin Neumuller was a Protestant minister who was arrested in Nazi Germany on June 1st, 1937, after previously supporting the Nazis. Now, they say that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I said it before, and I'll say it again. There's a truth about stories. And that's, that is this. You have heard this story now. You may do with it whatever you want, but what you do with it is up to you. At any rate, until next time, my friends, thanks again for supporting the show. Check out the links in the show notes for and to get more information, and uh, as always, so long, and thanks for all the fish. And what I say, the captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And I'll take it over the ship. It's a mutiny. What's happening here? You're no longer in control and we're drinking up your beer. This is now a democratic, egalitarian pirate ship. So enjoy your trip. Cause it's a mutiny.